0: The American people realize that this cannot be made a fight between America's two great political parties. If this fight against communism is made a fight between America's two great political parties, the American people know that one of those parties will be destroyed and the republic can't endure very long as a one-party system.
1: As the United States entered March 1954, U.S. officials announced a successful hydrogen bomb test, while four Puerto Rican nationalists opened fire in the House of Representatives chamber. Five were wounded. On March 9th, Edward R. Murrow's news team produced a CBS See It Now episode, a report on Senator Joseph McCarthy. They used excerpts from McCarthy's own speeches to point out his contradictions. Moreau and head of CBS News Fred W. Friendly pay for the program's marketing. CBS wouldn't allow the team to use the company logo.
2: Good evening. Tonight, See It Now devotes its entire half hour to a report on Senator Joseph R. McCarthy, told mainly in his own words and pictures. Because a report on Senator McCarthy is by definition controversial, we want to say exactly what we mean to say. If the senator feels that we have done violence to his words or pictures and desires, so to speak, to answer himself, an opportunity will be afforded him on this program. If this fight against communism is made a fight between America's two great political parties, the American people know that one of these parties will be destroyed and the republic cannot endure very long as a one-party system. We applaud that statement and we think Senator McCarthy ought to. He said it 17 months ago in Milwaukee. But on February 4th, 1954, Senator McCarthy spoke of one party's treason.
3: The issue between Republicans and Democrats is clearly drawn. It has been deliberately drawn by those who have been in charge of 20 years of treason. Now, the hard fact is that those who wear the label, those who wear the label Democrats Worth with the stain of a historic betrayal.
1: The broadcast provoked thousands of letters, telegrams, and phone calls to CBS headquarters. They ran 15 to 1 in favor of Murrow's sentiment. McCarthy went on the program to reject Murrow's criticism. He said, Ordinarily, I wouldn't take time out from important work to answer Murrow. However, in this case, I feel justified because Murrow is a symbol a leader, and the cleverest of the jackal pack that's always found at the throat of anyone who dares expose individual communists and traitors. The rebuttal served only to further decrease McCarthy's already fading popularity. However, his army hearings were set to convene on March 16th. They would help emphasize the fact that the United States of America, like the radio industry itself, was during this year in a state of turmoil.
4: I remember uh, McCarthy accused Murrow of being a uh, communist sympathizer. Sure. Of course, they had a running battle going on for a long time, and I remember Howard Hughes was called up before the House Un-American Activities Committee. I have some shows of that uh, and made to testify. That's where Hughes had the dramatic answer, and
5: I, I forget the question, but there was very little hesitation, and he said, "No, no, I don't think I will." Oh. That was the end of his
6: testimony.
1: I believe I believe I do have that.
5: That left on
4: Ed Murrow is hear it now. Uh huh.
1: Unlike Howard Hughes, though, tonight, we'll talk about it.
0: Much I love you
7: Never know how much I care When you put your arms around me I get a fever that's so hard
1: to Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 125. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we continue our miniseries in March of 1954. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme is Peggy Lee's version of Fever. It's a fitting song for the state of the times during the height of the Red Scare. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com groups slash The You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month. Patreon.com slash the wall breakers.
7: You all know Fever isn't such a new thing, Fever started long ago.
8: Everything is
6: relative, and only in in retrospect do you realize that.
8: Exactly, exactly.
9: People say, well, radio was really so much easier. But it wasn't really, Dick, because that was it. That was the medium at the time. That was the advertising medium. The pressures were there. And in many ways, radio was more difficult because you had only the one tool. You had only a voice to portray a character with. Whereas in a visual medium like television... Everybody has their, their own preconceived idea of what somebody looks like, or what a lawyer looks like, or what a, what a police chief should look like, or what a, what a hood or a gangster should look like, or what a sexy young girl or a matronly woman. In radio, we ran the gamut. You know, you played everything. Sure. And you had to do it all in your head and let it all come out through your voice. And you couldn't do that unless your character was right.
1: airing weekdays at 2:15 p.m. over WCBS in New York was Perry Mason. the show debuted on October 18, 1943. Mason was a crime-busting lawyer. it often featured the just heard Mandel Kramer. on March 1st, Mason who was voiced by John Larkin and Della Street voiced by Claudia Morgan wondered who was behind an underworld syndicate.
10: It's mid-morning shortly after the close of our last episode, as Della Street enters the law library, Perry Mason is speaking on the phone.
11: Yes, yes, that's right. Check it through, will you? And be sure to let me know. If... Hmm, right. That was Lieutenant Halverson. They've checked the moniker file.
12: Mm-hmm.
11: There are several dozen crooks known as Gus involved in Cartha. Any or none of them might be the Gus tied up with the syndicate.
12: So we'll have to find Suzanne Barkley before we can identify Gus, hmm?
11: Unless we find the nerve center. What's that? Well, the syndicate is big business. It's got to have bookkeepers and auditors, a controller, a treasurer. It has to have men who hand out assignments to the boys and girls who actually steal the cars, and another whole team of drivers to dispose of them. There has to be a headquarters. They, they have to have a meeting place, a clearinghouse. Yes,
12: but, Chief, I don't... Della...
11: Didn't... Listen, suppose Della Street is 18 and reckless, and you fall for the line Gus hands you. You go to work for him... As Sue Barkley did? Yes, just about. Okay, now you're working for Gus. You, uh, you steal a car for him, say, in Washington. Mm-hmm. And you deliver it here for redistribution. Okay, you have to be paid and get another assignment. Now, Gus could handle this over the phone, but it would be so much better if you have a safe place to meet your boss face to face. Then Gus can brief you on latest developments. And remember, they've got scores of people in this syndicate. So the clearinghouse must be a place where a number of people going in and out wouldn't attract attention. Preferably, it's close to a hot car drop where stolen cars are taken for alteration.
12: Oh, well, that could be a lot
11: of places. Yeah. Well, I'll have to tell Mr. Wallace of this development. Give him an appointment. I'll hmm?
12: take your desk, Alan. No, I'll do it. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, fellow, what is this?
11: They have written here... Tony's for dinner.
12: Tony's is the new nightclub where Kate Beekman has started to work, and I thought since her father asked us to look it over to see what kind of place it is... Yes, I understand. Did you make reservations? I wouldn't dream making plans without you, Counselor. uh uh-huh. <laughs> I'll make the reservations right now. After your phone, Mr. Wallace. Up.
10: Well, as you know, the syndicate does have a clearinghouse, a secret meeting place.
11: That place is the new nightclub where Kate Beekman is working and where Kate herself is in
5: imminent danger. For unknown to Kate's parents or to Perry Mason, Kate's boss is Gordon Weber. Now in Gordy's office.
13: Yeah? Gus, I didn't ask you to come in. I'm sure you did. Look, don't tell me what I you said. You told me
10: to come in when my boys picked up the first batch of cars. My boys have got the first batch of cars, so here I am and here's the worksheet. You forget how fast I work, Gordy.
13: You just started. The
10: cars are in the garage, the mechanics will have them repainted, and the serial numbers altered by tonight, and we'll ship them out for delivery.
13: Uh, It's okay for a start. All right, beat it, Gus. I got things to do.
10: If you mean assigning drivers to deliver the heaps, I made your schedule. Yeah? Yeah. Here. And if you mean getting the boys and girls together for a meeting, that's all taken care of. I passed the word. And if you mean the uh, estimate of expenses J.T. always wants to see, I fixed that, too. I do wrong, Gordy? Wrong? You don't care if I took it on myself
13: to fix up those little details? Care? Me? Gus, I'm glad you did. Huh? Yeah, I want you to take care of the details. That's fine, Gus. Keep it up. You'll save me time. What was that? Well, I can't uh, give you details, Gus. J.T. says keep it under my hat, but I can tell you, JT's given me a special job to do for him. So the more time you save for me, the more time I'll have for J.T.'s special job.
10: Huh.
13: Oh, and, Gus, in case you got the idea, you can stall. So I won't have time for J.T.'s job. Don't. or oh, I'll have to tell J.T. you aren't pulling your weight so I can't do his job for him. You know how J.T. feels about a pet idea. That sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah. Too bad uh, J.T. and me don't want to let you in on it. I'll see you, Gordy. Yeah, one more thing. Miss Facina. Hmm? Oh, the girl who's in charge of entertainment. Yeah, yeah. I understand you went to see her last night. Now, that's okay, Gus. Do me a favor. Keep it up. I'm going to be so busy I won't have time for Tony.
10: A special job, eh? Yeah,
13: that's it. So, uh, look out for her, will you, pal? I mean, Miss Fasina. The girl who's in charge of entertainment. And, Gus, remember. Leave the rest of the help alone.
10: Referring to Kate Beaton?
13: Her and the rest of them, except Tony. Now get out. Oh, Gus. Yeah? Report back at two this afternoon. Sure. Oh,
14: hello, Gus.
10: Well, if it isn't Miss Fasina, who's in charge of entertainment. Huh? I want to talk to you.
14: We've got nothing to talk about.
10: Yeah, you've got something to tell me. Oh, no. And I've got something to tell you. Well, we can go in the cocktail lounge. I don't like cocktail lounges. Yeah, I will get the door? Yeah, we got the joint to ourselves.
14: You, um, got something to tell me?
10: Yeah. You're a sucker, Tony. What? I offered you a bona fide proposition last night. I offered to help you if you'd put in the good word for me with Gordy. And what happens? You told him I came to see you. Sure I did. That wasn't smart, Tony.
14: What do you think you're kidding, big boy? You said put you in solid with Gordy. that will be good for you and good for me. Because
10: that'd leave him with more time with you.
14: Yeah, and you said it'd help Gordy, which is what you want. Gordy told me about you, handsome. He says you'd do anything to stab him in the back.
10: He's only half right, Tony. Look, I'm going to level with you. Skip it. Tom. Cards on the table, Tony. This is what I couldn't tell you before.
14: Oh, you trust me now. Yeah,
10: because you've got to trust me. I know what's going on. I know what's eating you. Gordy and that redhead.
14: I didn't say... You don't
10: have to. Gordy told me. What? Oh, he didn't mean to. But I'm a boy who can add two and two and come up with the right answer. Look, let's take it in order, kid. Gordy's half right, but only half right. The only thing I want is to get out from under his thumb, and I'll do it any way I can.
14: If you think I'm going to help you... You can
10: help me in a way that won't hurt Gordy. At least not much. Gordy told you he's got no time for you now. He says it's because he's got to get chummy with the redhead. He told you it's a business deal, right?
14: I'm not saying. Well,
10: it's supposed to be a secret. But Gordy's a lad who has to talk. You know he's got a boss. You know this is more than a nightclub. Well, I... I know you know. Because I know Gordy has to talk. Just like he had to tell me what he told you. He has to throw his weight around and act like a big guy. Look,
14: I'm not going to sit here and let you knock Gordy.
10: Look, how you feel about Gordy is your business. But it fits real cozy with my business. Because you want Gordy. And you'll help me in order to get him. What? You don't stand a chance once he starts after that redhead.
12: Gordy said... Yeah,
10: yeah, he said it's business. But you know Gordy, too. Now, here's my ace. Was Gordy mad when you told him I came to see him?
14: Oh, yeah, he he hit the ceiling.
10: Don't make me laugh. He didn't care, right? And here's my other ace. Gordy went so far as to ask me to take you off his hands. He didn't. That's just talk, kid. You know I'm telling you the truth. Gordy's slipping away from you. Are you, uh, just gonna let him slip away, or, uh... You're gonna fight back. My way.
14: I don't want anything to happen to Gordy.
10: Now, look. What if I fix it so Gordy keeps his job, keeps operating the club? And what if I fix it so he lets the redhead alone? So he'll go out of his way to keep from speaking to her. You like that, Tony?
14: You can't fix that. The big boss told Gordy. Unless he's lying. If Gordy's lying. That's our race in the hole,
10: kid. The big boss did tell him to get friendly with Kate Beekman. The big boss has plans for her. How do you know? Because I know how he operates. I know him better than Gordy. Gordy used to work for me. Look, kid, all we have to do is make the big boss see Gordy's not the guy to make with Beekman. You get it? Yeah, but. All the big boss wants is results. He doesn't care who gets her confidence. When he sees Gordy can't do it, he'll turn it over to me. But how? (laughs) How? That's the fourth ace, Tony. That's the simplest thing of all. If you'll help. Will you?
14: You, uh, promise Gordy won't get hurt?
10: Only a little bit. I mean, the boss will be disappointed, but since I'm here and ready to take over, it won't signify. Let me tell you something. Before you give me your answer... This business is like a ladder. Gordy's up the ladder ahead of me. If I can't get past him the easy way, I'm going to kick him all the way off.
14: He might kick you off. Maybe.
10: But it'll be a real dogfight unless you help me. What do you say, Tony?
8: Mm, I
14: I wish I knew what you were going to do.
10: (laughs) Do? I'm just going to show the big boss I'm the man to get friendly with Kate Beekman, that's all.
5: Until now, Kate Beekman has not been directly involved in the struggle for power within the Syndicate, but in the very near future, Kate herself will be involved directly and dangerously. By all means, join us tomorrow, won't you?
1: While Perry Mason's directors were men like Carlo D'Angelo and Carl Eastman, women were as likely to be in the midday director's chair as men. They often exuded confidence that put fear into young radio actors.
9: Another name that actors will remember, certainly, a woman by the name of Martha Atwell, who directed a great many of the daytime uh, dramatic shows for Blackett Sample and Hummer, Air Features. But she was literally unapproachable. She was a lovely lady, as I found out later, but no one approached her. I mean, on the third floor, when this lady walked by, nobody approached her because she was very aloof and she was that she could just, you know, destroy you with a look. Later on, I found out that, you know, you, you never speak to her, you just don't. But in going, I didn't know this at the time. You know, fools rush <laughs> That's in. That's right. And I had this list of names of people who directed these shows, and I saw Martha Atwell, and look at all the shows she directs. Well, I did what what seemed the only normal, natural thing to do. I looked up Martha Atwell in the New York telephone directory, and I called her. At I, home. At home. <laughs> I swear to you, this is the truth. I called her at home, and I introduced myself to her on the phone. And I think... She was so amused, really, by my complete naivete that I had the incredible (laughs) effrontery to do this, you know? And I said, I'm new in New York, and I understand that you direct the show, the show, and the show, and I would like very much to read for you, you know, if that's at all possible. I don't know what her reaction was, except I can only think that she must have been terribly amused, because she said, you come to NBC tomorrow, uh, studio, whatever it was, uh, at such and such a time. I said thank you very much, and I didn't. I thought that's the way you do it. Mm-hmm. So I went. I was there, and I waited until the rehearsal broke, and I went in. And here was this lady, and I introduced my. I said, "I'm Mandel Kramer. I spoke to you on the phone," and uh, she said, "Let me hear you read this." And she handed me a script. I think it was a character called Bluey Masters or something, it was <laughs> a gangster, and I read about three lines for her. And she said, "All right, are you available for whatever the show was next week?" Was I available? <laughs> and I'll tell you something. I worked for this lady on and off for twenty years, and you know, she always cast me as that same part, no matter what the name was. It was of the character it was always Blowing Masters. <laughs> I always yeah, came man. in, and it was always all right. Buddy, hand it over now. You know, it's funny, you know, fools rush in. I guess.
15: As you know,
5: Perry Mason is fighting a huge crime syndicate. But big as it is, the syndicate is cloaked in secret. Kate Beekman doesn't know the nightclub where she works is the local syndicate headquarters and meeting place. She doesn't dream
13: she is a stake in the hidden battle between two powerful syndicate members, Gordon Weber and
5: August Jansen. No, Kate doesn't suspect. Any more than do most of the club employees. For example, Monsieur Bolin, head chef.
13: Chef Boland is a thoroughly honest and very capable man. His first concern is his beloved kitchen. He's absolute monarch of his kitchen kingdom. And because he's a wise ruler, he has a moment for his most humble subject.
10: Ah, uh, Mademoiselle Kate.
16: Oh, Mr. Boland, I, I've just been standing here watching. I'm trying to keep out of the way.
17: Yes, I've watched you watch.
16: Well, I guess I should have found something to do, but I, I, I checked the menu. It's
17: all right, Mademoiselle Kate. You watch, you learn. Good. But now uh, there is something you can do. Uh, Come with me, please. We go in the head waiter's office where you will answer the telephone and list the reservations. It will not be long. Carl is having a little meeting with his waiters. Uh, Sit here, mademoiselle. Now, here is the telephone and the card. List the name... The number in the party and... You listen once while I answer, yes? Yes? Oh, oui, monsieur. And how many? Quatre. Merci. Merci, monsieur Browning. Now, you see. The name, the number in his party, and then put the card in the little box for Carl. You see? Yes, sir. Good. Now I have something to tell you, Mademoiselle Kate. I have decided to let you learn to check the food.
16: But Mr. Bowman, Mr. Weber? Said... Uh,
17: please. Mr. Weber is boss, yes, but he is not boss in the kitchen. Here, I am boss. Oh yes, Mr. Weber says I wish Mademoiselle Kate to be a food checker, but I make the final decision. Now I have decided you can learn. Thank you, Mr. Bowen. You are welcome, Mademoiselle Kate. I will return in a moment.
16: All right. Oh. Uh, Tony?
12: I'd like to make a reservation for opening night, please. Hello?
16: Yes, ma'am. How many in your party, please? Two, and we'll want dinner. Kate? Kate? Ma'am?
12: Am I speaking to Kate Beekman? This is Ella Street. Oh, Miss Street. I thought I recognized your voice. How are you, honey?
16: Oh, I- I'm fine, thank you, Miss Street. Do you like your job? Oh, yes, especially parts of it. Hmm? Well, I-, I don't have any one job. I, I work for Mr. Boland and for the entertainment manager. Who's Mr. Bolin? Oh, Miss Street, he's so nice.
12: Oh, young and handsome? <laughs>
16: Oh, no. He's older than my father.
12: <laughs> Which makes him ancient, of course. <laughs> oh, not exactly,
16: but he is nice. He's chief chef, and he's going to teach me to be a food checker. Oh, oh,
12: just a second. Get on the other line, Perry. I'm speaking to Kate. Mr. Mason just came in the office. Hello, Kate.
16: Uh, hello, Mr. Mason.
12: Well, how's it going?
16: Oh, just... It's a fine, thanks.
12: Well, well, you get our reservations, Ella? Uh, Kate's taking it for me.
16: Good. Well, then we'll see you opening night, Kate. Well, I, I I'm afraid you can't, Mister Mason. Uh, oh, you'll be
12: busy. Kate, you just said you could see
16: us. Well, I, I could, I guess, but I, I can't give you a reservation. Oh, and well, Kate. Oh, what me. did
11: you say, Kate? Well,
16: just, just what I said, Mister Mason.
11: Well, I, well, why can't you give me a reservation? Now I own a dress suit, you and know. I have a new evening dress.
17: Uh,
16: excuse me, Miss Street. Did you want to speak to me, Mr. Boland? No, no, I will wait. Uh, Yes, sir. Well, Kate? Well, I'm awfully sorry, Mr. Mason.
11: Why? Uh, Don't you want us to come out?
16: Oh, no, it isn't that, but um, there aren't any more reservations.
11: Mademoiselle
17: Kate. People
16: have been calling and calling, and, well, there just aren't any more reservations. But,
17: Mademoiselle Kate.
16: Uh, Golly, Mr. Mason, you and Miss Street are friends of mine, and if I could get you a reservation, I could, but... Well, if there's a cancellation, I'll let you know. I'll let you know the very first thing. Well,
11: all right, Kate.
16: I'm sorry, Mr. Mason, but... No,
11: no, don't worry about it. Goodbye,
16: Kate. Goodbye, Mr. E. (coughs) Mr. Boland.
17: Yes? Uh, (coughs) You had best explain, Mademoiselle Kate. Well,
16: I... I guess I'd better explain.
17: Uh, Don't you think so?
16: It... It's a secret, Mr. Boland.
17: Well... Perhaps you will tell me the secret.
16: Only I don't know if...
17: If you can trust me with this great secret. I'm a man of trust, Mademoiselle Kate.
16: Yes, sir. I believe you are. Mr. Mason is a friend of my father and mother. He's Mr. Perry Mason.
17: Hmm, The man of law. Yes, I know.
16: Mr. Mason knows Mr. Webber. If Mr. Mason came here and saw Mr. Webber, Mr. Mason would know I work for Mr. Webber. And? And Mr. Mason would tell my father who the manager is. My father knows Mr. Weber. My father wouldn't let me work here if he knew Mr. Weber's the manager.
4: Uh,
17: Papa is not in rapport with Mr. Weber? Uh,
16: if that means Pa doesn't like Mr. Weber, no, he doesn't.
17: Uh, Papa has a reason, but of course. Yes. And uh, Maman, she feels the same? Yes, sir. Well, uh, what is it with Mr. Weber? Can you tell me?
16: Only... Well, only that something a long time ago... Pa and Ma don't like Mr. Weber. They'd make me quit my job if they knew. Oh,
17: then why do you wish to work here, if Papa and Mama... Oh,
16: Mr. Bolin, I had to have a job. And this job is a chance to learn. I wanted to be a dancer. I studied for years, but I was in an accident... I can't dance anymore, but at least I can work around dances. I can learn to work in the entertainment business. But your mother and I'll father... I'll be all right, Mr. Boland. Mr. Weber isn't interested in me.
17: I, I don't know. It isn't
16: as if I were here all by myself.
17: But what have you just done? It's only a matter of time. Mr. Mason will come some other time. I'll
16: make sure it's a time when Mr. Weber isn't here. But
17: Papa and Maman, what if they come here?
16: They can't. My father's on parole from prison. He can't visit a nightclub. Please, Mr. Boland, I'm sorry I had to lie to Mr. Mason.
17: And to your parents. It is a lie when you keep the truth a secret.
16: And perhaps it would be better
17: if you did not work in this place.
16: Oh, Mr. Boland, Mr. Weber isn't interested in me.
13: Uh... All right, Katie.
16: What, Mr. Weber?
13: Got through with his meeting. Now you can come in my office.
16: But I... I. Oh, this is the boss
13: talking, Katie. Don't argue with the boss. I want to see you in my office. Oh, uh, say, Mr. Boland. Yes? You know you got us some free advertising? One of the columns hmm? mentions you're going to be in charge of the kitchen for us. That'll mean at least 35, 40 additional reservations. Uh,
17: Mr. Weber. Huh? Mademoiselle Kits is needed here. I had something else for her to do when Carl arrives. Oh, Yeah. Now listen, Chef. I don't have to Yes?
13: Mr. Weber, you are going to tell me? <laughs> I know better than to tell you anything. Not here in your own kitchen. All right, I'll put it this way. Get this, Kate. This is the boss asking favors of the help. Okay, Mr. Boland, I'm asking you to send Katie to my office. Oh, but no, monsieur. Maybe you didn't understand, Chef.
17: I want Please. To... I decide I want Mademoiselle Kate to work here with me in the kitchen. Now, you understand?
13: I ought to tell you to... What are we getting all upset for? Okay, okay. Chef, have it your way. I'll see you some other time.
16: Thanks, Mr. (laughs) Bowen.
17: That time... I could help here in my kitchen I can watch as your papa would watch but as that little man just said there will be other times when I cannot watch
11: well Kate Beekman has gained a friend
5: chef Bolan is a friend and as we're going to learn Kate is going to need every bit of help she can get because Kate is on the brink of danger Be sure to hear tomorrow's important development. By
1: 1954, Mason's cast had greatly expanded. On radio, he was as much a detective as a lawyer.
9: Incidentally, you know, that, nothing like that exists anymore. In the old days, the third floor at NBC was where everybody congregated. There were Colby's, which is non existent now. Colby's was the restaurant at CBS, 485 Madison Avenue. So if you wanted to meet any of your friends or just find out what was going on, you just ended up on the third floor of NBC over at Colby's, and you kind of got the word there. It was all passed on. Everybody congregated there, and it was social. And also, there was a good chance to nab a director as he walked through the, you know, from sure. one studio to another because the third floor was where a great many of the dramatic shows came from, from the studios on the third floor. But radio was really my first love, you know. The great camaraderie that existed in radio in the early days before your time, Dick, when there was a, a relatively small number of us, I don't know how many exactly, but a fairly small group of actors who were fortunate enough to be in demand most of the time, you could work, and did work, seven days a week.
1: The version Raymond Burr played on TV was markedly different. The radio version of Perry Mason ran until December 30th, 1955. Mandel Kramer could then be seen, starring in The Edge of Night.
5: Our guest is Mandel Kramer here on the Golden Age. Golden of Hey, how about that? Got a
1: new name <laughs> for the show. Just thought I'd
5: throw a plug in there for you. <laughs> Who is known as Bill Marceau on Edge of Night, of
6: course, the police chief. Incidentally, how did you uh, arrive at that role? Was Bill Marceau introduced on the program as the police chief? You didn't work your way up? No, he you? started
9: out as a lieutenant. Oh, he did. And then he became a captain. And now I'm the chief. And I just hope they don't make me the commissioner because he's never seen. (laughs) We just talk about the commissioner. (laughs) You
0: might mention how that show got started. Uh, I never knew this until you told me about it at lunch.
9: Yes. We were talking, actually, we we were talking about... About about, the transition uh, from uh, when you you were doing doing
0: Perry
10: Mason. And Johnny
9: Larkin and I were doing the Perry Mason radio show. Johnny was playing Perry Mason. And I was doing Lieutenant Tregg as a daytime radio show. Then back in... uh, I guess it was 56. They decided that they would put uh, Perry Mason on as a half-hour daytime dramatic show. At this point, all the uh, dramatic shows had been 15-minute shows. Right. Edge of Night and As the World Turns were the first two half-hour dramatic shows. Ultimately, some of the shows that started out as 15-minute shows, like uh, Search, Guiding Light and there may have been one or two others, went half-hour. But we were the first to start out as half-hour shows. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. The original plan was to put Perry Mason on as a half-hour dramatic melodrama. Well, as I understand it, I hope my facts are straight, they had some problems with Earl Stanley Gardner in arranging for the kind of, negotiating the kind of release that would be necessary in order to uh, put Perry Mason on. Obviously, they were unable to resolve those problems, whatever they were. So they decided that they would do that kind of a format, but change the names. And instead of it being Perry Mason, it became The Edge of Night. Instead of the character being Perry Mason, the criminal lawyer, he was Mike Carr. And Lieutenant Tragg became Bill Marceau. That's pretty much how it came about, how the idea of the show came about. Because we are really the only daytime show that is really melodrama.
8: That's most right. That's most right. of the
9: daytime shows are family things, you know. But we're really melodrama. I mean, uh, in a way I'm still doing cops and robbers, though I'm on the other side of the the fence now. And we have a lot of action, and we have a lot of mystery, and we have a lot of whodunit going on.
8: In just a moment, you'll hear an address
6: by the Honorable Adlai E. Stevenson. But first, a word about the 1954 Red Cross Drive. Calls for help come to the Red Cross every minute of every day. By joining your Red Cross, you make sure these urgent appeals will be answered. Through Red Cross, each American as an individual can do his part for humanity.
1: On March 6th, 1954. 1952 Democrat presidential nominee Adlai Stevenson gave a dinner speech at the Florida DNC. In 1952, Stevenson was a heavy underdog against Dwight Eisenhower. He carried only nine states, but did get more than 44 percent of the popular vote.
18: For whose work in behalf of our country and our party, we are all grateful.
1: He was quick to lash out at the McCarthy-driven political state of affairs. There were many who feared the Red Scare would destroy the country, and the divisions felt between Americans were so deep, they might never be repaired.
19: Governor John Senator sparkman honored guests and ladies and gentlemen your introduction Senator sparkman and your welcome here in Miami has touched me deeply which I suppose is something that we all have in common at this very expensive dinner
8: <laughs> it's, it's, it's,
19: This has been a fateful week in the history of American government. We are witnessing the bitter harvest from the seeds of slander, defamation, and disunion planted in the soil of our democracy. I don't propose to respond in kind tonight to the calculated campaign of deceit to which we have been exposed of late, nor to the insensate attacks on Democrats as traitors, communists, and murderers of our sons. Those of us, and they are most of us, who are more Americans than Democrats or Republicans count some things more important than the winning or the losing of elections. There is a peace still to be won, an economy which needs some attention, some freedoms to be secured, an atom to be controlled, all through the delicate, sensitive, indispensable mechanisms of democracy, mechanisms which demand, at the very least, that people's vision be clear, that they be told the truth, and that they respect one another. A year ago, at this time, there was every reason to hope that we were on the threshold of an era of great good feeling among Americans. Yet today, where we hope for harmony, we have discord. Where we yearn for healing, we have hostility. Where we look forward to a nation united, we have a people divided. Where we expected candor, we have misrepresentation. Where we expected firm leadership, we have timidity. It is wicked, it is subversive, for public officials to try deliberately to replace reason with passion, to substitute hatred for honest difference, to fulfill campaign promises by practicing deception, and to hide discord among Republicans by sowing the dragon's teeth of discord among Americans. The loyalty, the patriotism of a whole political party, of one half of the nation, has been indicted. Twenty years of bipartisan effort, highly intelligent and highly successful, has been called 20 years of treason under the auspices, if you please, of the Republican National Committee. When one party says that the other is the party of traitors who have deliberately conspired to betray America, to fill our government services with communists and with spies, to send our young men to unnecessary death in Korea. They violate not only the limits of partisanship, not only they also offend the credulity of our people and they also stain the vision of America and of democracy for us and for the world that we seek to lead. That such things are said under the official sponsorship of the Republican Party in celebration of the birthday of Abraham Lincoln adds desecration to defamation. This is the first time that politicians, Republicans at that, have sought to split the union in Lincoln's honor. This system of ours is wholly dependent upon a mutual confidence in the loyalty, the patriotism, the integrity of purpose of both parties. Extremism produces extremism. Lies beget lies. The infection of bitterness and if hatred spreads all too quickly uh, from one area of another to another of our life. And those who live by the sword of slander may also perish by it. For now, it is also being used against distinguished Republicans. We have just seen the sorry spectacle of this in the baseless charges hurled against our honored Chief Justice. And now, too, the highest officials of the Pentagon are charged with coddling communists and shielding treason. General Zwicker, one of our great army's finest officers, is denounced by Senator McCarthy as stupid, arrogant, witless, as unfit to be an officer, and a disgrace to the uniform. For what? For obeying orders, this to a man who has been decorated 13 times for gallantry and for brilliance, a hero of the Battle of the Bulge, and this from a man whom the Republican National Committee sends around the country to sow slander and disunion in memory of Abraham Lincoln. When demagoguery and deceit become a national political movement, we Americans are in trouble Not just Democrats, but all of us. Our State Department has been abused and demoralized. The American voice abroad has been enfeebled. Our educational system has been attacked. Our press threatened. Our servants of God impugned. A former president maligned. The executive departments invaded. Our foreign policy confused. The president himself patronized. And now the integrity, the loyalty, the morale of the United States Army has been assailed. For a moment, it looked as if this most recent audacity would at last meet effective resistance. But instead, well, what I might say, as a Democratic partisan, would have little value. But the pattern of this long series of aggressions against the Republic. Is clear and the consequences terrible. The logic of all this not only is not only the intimidation and silence of all independent institutions and opinion in our society but the capture of one of our great instruments of political action the Republican Party and the end result in short is a malign and a fatal totalitarianism. And why, you ask, have the demagogues triumphed so often? The answer is inescapable, because a group of political plungers has persuaded the president that McCarthyism is the best Republican formula for political success. Had the Eisenhower administration chosen to act in defense of itself, and of the nation which it must govern, it would have had the grateful and the dedicated support of all but a tiny and deluded minority of our people.
1: Stevenson would again receive the Democrat nomination in 1956. Yet He'd lose, this, this time carrying only seven states and receiving 42% the of the popular vote. Appears to be
19: Why? Because the party which created the administration is hopelessly, dismally, fatally torn and rent within itself.
20: This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of, what is that? It smells like gazpacho? A gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to firesidemysterytheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother that villain is cutting my rope well that must mean my time is up so tune in and subscribe to the fireside mystery theater podcast oh and be sure to mind the shadow
4: It occurred to me years later how many shows we did and what kind of writing we had
21: and the kind of chances that we took. I suppose if I were given the opportunity, I'd do the same thing again.
4: It seems to me that if you're going to do an anthology, which that was, that's the kind of anthology to do. You do a little bit of everything. You take all kinds of chances. Remember the one we did call Conrad in Quest of His Youth? There was a magnificent show. Fred Steiner did music for it. Just lovely love story. e wrote the dozen fantastic original stories. Shirley Gordon did such good stuff.
22: She did a thing called Call Me a Cab. Yeah. Remember that?
8: Yes. She did a lot of good stuff.
1: As radio audiences left for TV, Elliot Lewis continued to champion radio as a stronger dramatic medium. On Thursday, January 1st, 1953, he and wife Kathy debuted a new dramatic anthology program over CBS. It was called On Stage. On Stage was geared for adults, showcasing an eclectic array of scripts across multiple genres. To get the show off the ground, the Lewises tabbed some of the best writers in radio, like E. Jack Newman...
6: I want to talk to you a bit about the Kathy and Elliot Lewis show on stage. When you think of that series, which I think is one of the absolute high points of radio, how do you remember that series?
4: Very fondly, of course. And it was in really the waning days of radio. Because television was obviously going to move in and move in big and supplant radio drama as we knew it. But in that year and that time and particularly with on stage, radio really grew up and put on long pants. It became very adult and very sophisticated and very satisfying. I was lucky enough to write a dozen or so of the on stage with Kathy and Elliot Lewis. Really it was a free ball. Elliot was a a magnificent producer and director and performer. I could discuss dramatically very mature subjects and very mature themes, and I did, with no holes barred, and it was a marvelous experience for me as a writer, and I'll, I'll never regret the time and effort I put into it.
1: Stories would be rooted in powerful male-female situations, with two characters of equal strength being the main goal. They used a mix of classic and original tales, cutting across all dramatic disciplines, with mysteries, adventures, melodramas, satires, and comedy. Kathy was the perfect female foil, not just because she was Elliot's wife, but because she was a superb actress. Kathy
4: was a consummate actress, of course, beautiful woman, as I recall her. She was very gracious, kind, and very, very competent in her profession. I remember she made a, a, aside from her enormous success as a radio actress, she was also on a long-run television show, uh, with My Friend Irma.
8: Yeah,
2: radio and TV.
4: I always liked Kathy and always got along with her very well. I can't say that happened with every actress I've worked with since. <laughs>
1: By then, the West Coast character actors were like a family. A frequent co-star was Byron Kane.
6: It was all on-the-job training. It started in that backyard of Richard Pettuccini when I said to my other friend, oh, yes, I will go over. I walked over to KMPC against the wall with High Aberback, and away I went. That was really the first thing. Why I was able to do it, I can only say Mother Nature gave me that gift. I was. I have theories, of course, about acting and as, as many years have passed, I've talked to younger actors and who told me about their desires and their systems and the methods and the things, and I could go on for hours about that. I think a fine actor or actress, I believe, I know, a fine actor or actress is born. You don't learn to be a fine actress. You can learn on the job and learn tricks. Oh my God, the mistakes I've made, of course, of course. But the Lorene Tuttles, whoever, however she started, they, no one has to tell me. She was born, and I could go to the list of the people that you could remind me of that I've forgotten.
1: Ray Noble, Fred Steiner, and Lud Gluskin's music beautifully fit the production, and Burns Surrey's sound patterns were exceptional. The March 10th, 1954 episode was called The Crusade of Stanley Finston.
23: Kathy and Elliot Lewis on stage. (music) Kathy Lewis, Elliot Lewis, two of the most distinguished names in radio, appearing each week in their own theater, starring in a repertory of transcribed stories of their own and your choosing. Radio's foremost players in radio's foremost plays. Ladies and gentlemen, Elliot Lewis.
21: Good evening. May I present my wife, Kathy?
24: Good evening.
21: At one time or another, everyone, or almost everyone, feels it necessary to yell...
24: This yelling can be done in the manner of a rooter at a baseball game, in which case it's either for his favorite or against the umpire.
21: Or you yell when you're happy, a victory yell, so to speak, like the loud noise you make when someone gives you $23 million. Or
24: husbands and wives have been known to yell at each other. In a French movie, it's a sign of affection. Here in America, they're more liable to be cross.
21: And many of us yell at true or supposed injustices.
24: Ross Murray created two lovely people several months ago in a play called Penny Ante. Their names were Stanley and Dora Finston.
21: He got to like them and their attitudes, and he wrote another story about them.
24: It's the one we're going to do tonight. If you put together everything we've said so far, you'll find it's the introduction to The Crusade of Stanley Finston.
21: The question of right or wrong shouldn't even enter your mind in this case, officer. Intent is what you should look for. And I assure you it was purely unintentional on my part. A, a friendly remonstrance on your part would be sufficient, I think. Sir? Not to mention the goodwill you fellows would gain from me.
25: Would you sign here, Mr. Finston?
21: You mean you're still going to give me a ticket? Yes, sir. Okay. If that's the way you want it, okay.
25: Here you are, Mr. Finston. And here's your operator's license. Thanks.
21: I see you wrote here I was cooperative.
25: You were? Very.
21: Well, that's the last time you guys will ever write that about me. From now on, the police department is going to have to get along without my cooperation. You guys will be sorry you gave me this ticket. Stanley Finston never forgets an injustice. You'll see. And that goes for my friends, too. Is that you, Stanley? Yeah, it's me.
24: Allison worked the staff overtime? No. Get caught in traffic? No. Then how come you're late? What am
21: I, on the witness stand or something? What's the matter with you? Nothing. You sure? Nothing. I tell you, it's nothing.
24: All right. By the time you wash up, I'll have the... Dora. Yes, dear?
21: You know what I heard today? No, what? I heard that the cops in this town have a ticket quota. A what? A ticket quota. You know, they have to give out so many tickets a day. Oh? Sure. There are figures with the cops in this town. The way they give out tickets for practically no reason at all.
24: What did you get yours for?
21: He said I went through...
24: Went through what?
21: A stop sign.
24: Did you?
21: Not exactly.
24: What do you mean, not exactly?
21: What I said, not exactly. The way they got some of those signs set up, it's a deliberate, money-making trap for the city. I was driving down 4th Street... Stanley... Yes, Dora.
24: Don't aggravate. We'll take $5 out of the vacation fund and pay. It's
21: not the $5. It's the principal.
24: Stanley, you can't fight City Hall. I learned that expression when I was a kid.
21: Well, maybe you can't, but I can.
24: How? Now, how can you, one man, fight the whole traffic department?
21: I don't know, but I'm going to do it.
26: Stan. Hmm? Uh, what? Stan, I uh, thought I'd tell you, Allison's been watching you for the last few minutes. I don't know what you're reading, but I'll bet it isn't the reports on the Wilkerson account. How hey, you know? The Wilkerson account isn't paper-bound. Now, don't get mad at me. I'm just tipping you off to watch it. Allison's kind of hard nose about outside reading during office hours. Okay. Thanks, Al. Uh, uh, can I have uh, dibs on the book when you're through?
21: What? You know... Don't be selfish, old pal. It's not that kind of book. Oh. No, I'm not kidding. It's the vehicle code. The who? The vehicle
26: code. See? Well, what are you studying that for? Gonna become a cop? Drop
21: dead. Well, what are you studying for? I'm not studying. I'm only reading. What for? Well, yesterday I was driving... Oh, here comes Allison. Tell me at lunch, okay? Yeah, sure. Lunch. See you then.
26: I can understand all you said about getting even with the cops, but I still can't understand how you're going to do it by reading the vehicle code.
21: I'm going to (laughs) find something in the vehicle code that I can use to turn against
26: them. Now, Stan, you can't fight City Hall.
21: You been talking to Dora?
26: Well, no. Why? Nothing. Nothing. I'm telling you, Stanley, you get these guys mad at you, they go looking for you. I had an uncle once. I know what I'm doing. Sure you do.
21: You said it. Stan... Yeah. Pay him the five bucks and forget it. I'll pay the five dollars, but I'm not going to forget it. This is a crusade. Are you with me? I'd like to be, but I can't. Why not? I'm chicken.
8: Stanley? What? Honey, it's
24: after midnight. Aren't you ever going to come to bed?
21: Yeah, as soon as I'm finished going over this section.
7: Oh, for a week
24: now you've been going over and over that book. How long are you going to keep this up?
21: Till I find some mistake they made.
24: They don't make mistakes.
21: Yes, they do. I found a law about horses and livestock that they put in about 30 years ago and they were repealed only last year. If all this had happened last year, I would have had them where I want them.
24: You're sleepy, Stanley.
21: Well, then go to bed. I told you I'd be with you as soon as I finished.
24: You'll be dead when you go to the office tomorrow.
21: I don't care. It's my principle I'm concerned with now. A man can't live without principle, Dora. He
24: can't live without a job, either.
21: I got a job. You
24: won't have if you're too sleepy to keep it.
21: All right, all right, all right. Just a couple of more minutes. Is that too much to ask?
24: No, Stanley. Good night.
21: Good night. Dora? Yes, dear? Don't be mad at me.
24: I'm not. Thank you, dear. You're quite welcome, Stanley.
21: Good night. Night. Hey. Section four fifty two A. The vehicle approaching the intersection of the highway and the red. In... Five thirty four when approaching a crosswalk. Not controlled by the ego. And you're supposed to, And yeah, yeah, you have the right of way. Section 534A. The crosswalk at the intersection of Main and Wilson Street shall be prohibited to pedestrians. And the underpass will over the air crossing. Oh, at all times. Section 5's. What's that? Huh? Section 534A, the crosswalk at the intersection of Maine and Wilson shall be prohibited to... That's it. That's it. Dora. Dora. I got it. I got it. Dora, wake up. Uh, Wake up. uh, Dora. uh, I got it. Dora, uh, wake up. Wake up. I got it. What? what? uh, Stanley. Wake up. Oh. how I got it, Dora. I found what I was looking for. Oh, good. Go to sleep. Dora, honey, wake up. Wake up. Come on, wake up. I want to tell you what I got.
24: <sighs> tell me in the
21: morning. Please, Dora, wake up. Wake up. All
24: right, I'm up. Tell me.
21: You know where they're building the freeway?
24: Yeah. Yeah all over town.
21: No. What I mean is, you know where Maine and Wilson were blocked up so long?
24: Yes, I know. Well,
21: they passed a law saying that people couldn't cross the street. They had to go by way of the underpass.
24: All right, so let them go that way.
21: They don't have to do that now. The freeway is finished.
24: Stanley, I'm awake enough to know I don't know what you're talking about.
21: What I mean is this. I can go through the crosswalk while there's a pedestrian in it and they can't touch me because because legally, the pedestrian isn't supposed to be there in the first place. So? So, I'll deliberately keep going through the crosswalk while a pedestrian is in it and wait for a cop to stop me.
24: And he'll give you a
21: ticket? Oh, no, he won't. When I ask him what section of the vehicle code I violated, he'll have to tell me. And when he does, I'll throw section A right into his Sam Brown belt because giving me a ticket is illegal.
24: You sure you know what you're doing, Stanley? Of course I know what
1: I'm doing. On stage came at a bittersweet time in Kathy and Elliot's lives. Even as CBS referred to them as Mr. and Mrs. Radio, their marriage of 10 years was in trouble.
21: This time, they'll find out who the moron is.
24: That's what I'm afraid of.
1: They would divorce in 1959. Elliot would soon marry another noted actress, Mary Jane Croft. I found a
27: box that Elliot had with little cards and all alphabetized. What it was, this is how orderly he was, starting in 1937, I'm cherishing this box of cards, it had every show he did. What it paid, $3 yes. an inch. Yes. Wow. that's right, $5. Calling All Cars was one of them. What, some of the early ones. Yes, right. Uh, God, I can't Temestries remember. Tapestries of Life. Yeah, all <laughs> of these <laughs> things. That and began. it goes all the way through, and every week he totaled it up. But the thing that fascinated me was the names of all these shows and how much they paid. Yes, <laughs> right. $3.00 and That's a That's right. And yeah. Elliot Lewis was an inspired movie. director, yes, he as well cool. as a perfectly...
8: Mm-hmm. A wonderful oh, yeah.
27: actor. But yes. He was a wonderful actor. A magnificent director. director. Mm-hmm. Very easy. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. So maybe just the opposite of a Bill Robeson approach.
27: Well, he was quiet.
1: Mm-hmm.
8: Wasn't he no, quiet? He very... got things done.
1: No. For more information on Elliot Lewis's career, tune into Breaking Walls, episode 113.
22: The last thing is the Groucho thing, and you're running out of your time here. I say you got about right. five minutes. <laughs> it started in an interesting way. Ever the way. producer, ever yeah. the producer. Well, there was a Walgreen two-hour radio show on once a year to, for a penny sale, and they got a lot of people who were stars. Radio spectacular, I guess you'd mm-hmm. call it. And Linkletter was called to do a people are funny stunt, and I was the producer, and so I was there, and I held the needle which was to hand to Linkletter, which was to hand to Cesar Romero, who was blindfolded, who was supposed to put a patch on the seat of a contestant's pants. It was a very high-class (laughs) stuff. But I was sitting there in the audience watching Bob Hope and Groucho Marx reading a script, Mm -hmm. funny stuff. And Bob dropped his script by accident. So Groucho dropped his script on purpose, and they were much, much funnier with their scripts dropped than they were reading the Mm -hmm. stuff. And afterwards, I went up to Groucho, whom I didn't know, and said you know, hiring you to read a script is like buying a Cadillac for the purpose of hauling coal. You don't utilize Mm -hmm. your abilities. Mm -hmm. And he'd flopped four times on the radio. I said, you want to do a quiz show? He says, you mean compete with refrigerators? I said, yeah. He says, well, I've flopped four times so far. What can I lose? And that's how we went Mm -hmm. in business together to do this particular show, which was a rebirth for him because he was 57 years Uh old then.
1: You Bet Your Life, conceived by the just heard John Goodell and hosted by comedian Groucho Marx, debuted over ABC's Airwaves on October 27, 1947.
22: We made that show for $250 and the radio record, and I took it to all the networks. They all turned it down because they said Groucho's flopped four times on the radio. So then I read in the paper, here's the reading the variety again, (laughs) that Alan Gelman, president of Elgin American Compact Company of Chicago, is coming to the Beverly Hills Hotel to sign up Phil Baker for his <laughs> new quiz show, Everybody Wins. He's going to, see. So I called up Mr. Gelman at the Beverly Hills. I said, have you signed up Phil Baker yet? He says, no. I said, I want you to hear a record. So I took the record up to his room and played it. And he didn't know Groucho would flopped four times on the radio. He says, this is a funny record. I remember him and the coconuts. There's a pretty mm-hmm. funny man, you know. Okay, and we <laughs> made the deal. And Phil Baker fired his press agent.
1: <laughs>
22: anyway, that's how the thing got on.
1: Three couples were brought on stage to be interviewed and quizzed by Groucho. Each couple was given $20 and told to bet as much as they dared risk on four questions from a category of their choosing. The money would double with each successive step Couples could win $320, go broke on the first question, or finish anywhere in between. The couple with the largest money total got a chance at the jackpot question, worth at least $1,000. There was also a secret word each week, with bonus money to be divided if someone said the word while the show was on the air. Although 1947 was radio's highest-rated season, The quiz show aired against NBC's Mr. District Attorney on Wednesdays at 9.30. At season's end, You Bet Your Life only pulled a rating of 13. Groucho felt uncomfortable trying to be funny on a live radio show. Goodell's answer was to record the show, which allowed Groucho to relax. The program could be edited for time later. The idea worked. The show moved to CBS in 1949. You Bet Your Life became Network Radio's top-rated quiz show, finishing the season in 11th place overall. The Groucho thing was on radio first for a couple of years before it went. Three years. Three
22: years on radio and then um, 11 on television.
28: Did it go into television with Elgin American or right away with...
22: Oh, no, Elgin American was only on... They'd go on for 26 weeks and then try to get out for the... See, they only had Christmas selling. Oh, I see. And we just fussed along with them, and they were nice people Mm -hmm. because they started us. But it was Besoto. Chrysler Plymouth that really took over there, and they kept it for a long while, and we ran DeSoto out of business, made it an extinct car by having so many people. Actually, it wasn't the right product. Here we had a very large mass audience, a number one, number two show in radio and television, and a $6,000 item. Mm -hmm. So we figured Tony and Lever Brothers and those people, those are the ones that could use it, and those are the ones that finally got it. Uh
1: The contract with DeSoto Plymouth of Chrysler was worth $4 million over 10 years. It also moved the show to NBC radio and TV beginning October 4th, 1950. The program remained a top 10 hit into 1954. That March it was airing on radio Wednesday evenings at 9pm. The March 10th episode's secret word was STREET.
6: Ladies and gentlemen, the secret word tonight is STREET. S-T-R-E-E-T.
29: Really? You bet
0: your life.
18: It's Groucho
5: Marx in You Bet Your Life, the comedy quiz series produced and transcribed from Hollywood and brought to you by the more than 3,000 DeSoto Plymouth dealers. The dealers who have on display the outstanding DeSoto Automatic with fully automatic power flight transmission. And the all new Plymouth, your best buy in the low priced field.
0: And now here he is, the one, the only. That's me, Teddy Roosevelt. The
8: delighted. Well,
0: here I am again with a thousand dollars for one of our couples. George, who's first? Well,
18: Groucho, we have some people who were chosen because they have interesting stories to tell. Uh Miss uh, Beverly Kaanapu and Mr. Ernest Ray. Would you come in, please, and meet Groucho Marx.
0: Welcome uh, for the DeSoto Plymouth Dealers. Say the secret word and you'll divide $100. It's a common word, something you see every day. Mr. Ernest uh, Ray and Miss uh, Beverly uh, Kanapu. huh?
30: Beverly Kaanapu. Kaanapu.
0: Oh, I see. Ka'anapu. Yes. Do you have a Hawaiian name? Is that your real name?
30: Well, my full name is Beverly Phoebe Kamalulani Ka'anapu. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Kamalulani, that means under the shade of heaven.
0: Oh. Mm-hmm. Where were you born, Bev?
30: I was born in Kalihi in Honolulu, Hawaii.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm all right. How are you? But uh, <laughs> we always say that if anybody says Hawaii. Hawaii is the correct pronunciation,
24: huh? Hawaii or Hawaii?
27: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: But over here they say Hawaii. Don't they?
27: Well, that's
4: uh, the easiest way.
0: Yes, it is, <laughs> and also there's no joke. I mean, just to say I'm all right. How are you? <laughs> just to say Hawaii, you're dead. <laughs> aren't the real, genuine, blown-in-the-bottle Hawaiians pretty scarce now? I've heard there aren't too many of you left. Is this true?
30: Yes, that's very true. As for myself, I'm part Hawaiian and part German.
0: Really? Huh? Yes.
8: Yeah.
0: Well, whoever assembled the part suddenly knew what he was doing.
8: <laughs>
0: uh, who are you again? I forgot. Uh, Ernest Ray. Ernest Ray, Yes, eh? sir. Oh, glad to hear it. I'm always yes, glad sir. to meet a man who's Ernest. Eh? Yes, that's right. <laughs> Where are you from, Manny? Uh Billings, Montana. Uh, Billings, Montana. Montana. That's right out in the wild and woolly west, isn't it? Yes, yes, sir. You spend a lot of time busting broncos and chasing buffalo? No, I uh I spend most of my time practicing a flute. Up there. Oh, it's not easy on a horse when you're chasing a bumble. Right?
8: <laughs>
0: <laughs> no. The flute you say? You practice the flute? Uh, yes, sir. Oh, yes. I, are you pretty cool on the flute? Well, uh, I uh I uh I was the best flautist in the state. The best flautist in the uh, state. Best flautist. Flautist. floutist? Floutist. you said you played the flute. Or what's uh, a flout? A flout is a flute. Is a flute? Yes. A flout flute? Is it? flout a... flute. flute is a fl- flout is a flute. It's the same as a flute. That's the same thing. It's the same. Thing. Well, I've lined a word tonight. Floutist, huh? Yes, yes, sir. I... And you were the best flute player in Montana. Yes, I, I was the best flute player in Montana. Uh-huh. Well, that's uh, an easy claim to make. Can you oh. substantiate this claim? Well, uh, Groucho, while I was still in high school, I, uh, I entered a, a Montana you know, the flute co- contest in Montana see who was the best flute player. And I won first chair. And then, uh, <laughs> after that, I... I you I, won I, the chair, you say? Yeah, i I won the first chair. I won the first position. I was the first uh, flutist in the in the contest. They rated mm-hmm. me first. Well, suppose in that contest you'd have hit a, a sour oh. note, and uh, would you have taken your flute and blown your head off?
8: <laughs> no, uh,
0: I had third chair there, but I'd probably been denoted to about the fifth chair, I figure, if I... Hadn't done a good job. The fifth chair. I had third chair in the second flute section.
8: <laughs> Did you ever have
0: the second flute in the fifth chair section? <laughs> no. no. That's. I'm of... supposed to get you confused. Yeah. Well, that, that that second section, that second flute section, that's a uh, that there's ten flutists and uh, five of them got in the first. Ten flautists, isn't it? Flautists, yes. <laughs> yeah. But why do they call it flautists when it's really flutists? Huh? Well, that's, uh,
10: that's a, a, a foreign word. It's a French word, I think. Oh, well, why don't or you play the a... French
0: horn, then?
8: Oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> no, I, I don't know how uh, to do that. Anyhow, then... Well, that uh... hasn't stopped the men in our orchestra from playing. <laughs> well, I've, I've enjoyed this little chat with you two, but the time has come for some more serious endeavors, like uh, winning some uh, mula. Is that a Hawaiian word, mula? Yes, mula. 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 Or well you're going to play your bet your life I don't know if you know how to play your bet your life but we made a little change in our quiz last week you play the game this way the same way with the exception that we start you off with a bankroll of a hundred dollars and that's very nice you can quit now if you want (laughs)
8: every
0: time you miss a question you lose half your bankroll no matter what it amounts to at the time now let's see how much money you can make you selected science and medicine and remember the more the question is worth the harder it is Number seven. Number seven is $70. In the laboratory, what do you call the small gas burner used to heat test tubes? Flask. Talk it over. Yes.
8: Value?
0: Yes. No, I'm I'm sorry. It's a Bunsen burner. Well, you lost half of your original bankroll, so you now have $50. You have $50 Mm -hmm. left in the bankroll. Now, what do you Mm -hmm. want to go for? Well, let's try number eight. Number $80. What is the scientific name for the study of plants and plant life? Talk it over. Your partners. I think it's etymology. Mm-hmm. Study of plants, and plants. Scientific name for the study of plants mm-hmm. and plant life. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's try that. Etymology. <laughs> no, I, I'm sorry. Wow. <laughs> no, it's botany. What am I asleep today? You uh, lost half your bankroll again. You now have twenty five dollars. Twenty five, you're still in the running. Now don't get discouraged. Now, uh, what do you want to try? $90 one? Let's 10 100 on Yeah.
8: Something
0: on. Okay. Uh, How much? Uh, five, five, uh, $5. $50. What rare element do we obtain from pitch blend? Uh, let me see. I think we get radium. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Before you change your yeah. mind, it's radium, <laughs>
8: huh? <laughs>
6: <laughs> well, you now have $75.
0: It's your last chance to be the other couples now. Things are looking up a little, aren't they? Now, yeah. which one do you want to try now? Oh. We've got to try Ninety dollars. Uh, scientifically speaking, animals with backbones are called what? Talk it over. What are they called? Mammals? Vertebrae? backbones. Take a stab if you don't know. Uh, mammals. Oh, vertebrae probably. Yes, it was vertebrae. I yeah, wish I could fine. have helped you, uh-huh. but I couldn't. Oh.
18: Well, you lost half your bankroll
0: and you'll wind up with Thirty-seven dollars and fifty cents. I'm sorry you didn't win more. Thanks and good luck from the DeSoto Plymouth Dealers.
1: You Bet Your Life aired on NBC you Radio until September
31: 19, 1956.
2: Mar-
1: the original TV
8: series Mar- ran until 1961.
6: No Pat Madgwick. So folks, would you come in please and meet
8: Groucho Marx. Welcome youngsters for the DeSoto
7: I don't particularly like to work with my husband. I don't believe in wives and husbands working together, mm-hmm. but that's just my opinion. <clears throat> I worked with him, but we didn't hit it off too well while we were working together. He's a little rough during that whole radio period there, from yeah, uh, some forty-six to make make fifty-four. Yeah. But I, I made it, but I didn't. I wasn't too happy,
8: mm-hmm.
28: but yeah. I enjoyed it you were was, uh, an excellent actress on that program mm-hmm. you brought a lot of spark yeah, and, and of life time. to the well, i like that you Ellison. know it's like anything you do you get better
7: and better uh, and better but uh, a husband tends to pick on you or somebody uh, else won't pick he, on you. well he
28: might not pick on somebody he else wouldn't either, on benny, he
7: wouldn't pick on mary benny he wouldn't pick on anybody right. else but he'd pick on uh-huh. Mays. you see so actually that's part i didn't care for
32: Hi, everybody, this is Jay Stewart welcoming you to It Pays to Be Married, the show that honors the American home. Each weekday, we bring you couples from all walks of life who've had problems in their marriages and solved them. We'll hear them tell their true stories recorded from their married lives, and then they'll have an opportunity to win our family fortune jackpot.
18: Our first couple in a moment, but first. From the stories you've heard folks tell on It Pays to Be Married, you must have noticed, as we have, how often the importance of the home is emphasized. Oh, not the house itself, its size and value are not important but the home as the center of family activity. The gathering place to which children come after school. The place where the whole drama of life unfolds. It may be a little ranch house in the California Valley or an attic room in Ohio, but to the happily married couple, it's their castle. And as the famous song points out, be it ever so humble, there's no place like it. Some of our guests have told of their struggles to set up their homes, getting the money together for the down payment, perhaps even building the house themselves. Now, we hear the many stories of frustrations and the problems of living together, but all our guests have solved their problems, and they remind us that no matter what the struggles have been, it's worth it. A home like like everything else worthwhile has to be worked for. And those who meet their problems and solve them remind us each day that it pays to be married. Now meet our first couple
32: on a face to be married Mona and Ken Hughes of Fern Creek, Kentucky Fern Creek,
33: golly that's a wonderful name Is it very big?
27: About as big as it sounds
33: Yeah, well, how big's that? <laughs> well, it has a school, a drugstore, and a barbershop Barbershop,
27: that's where you'll find Ken most of the time
33: Oh, what do you do hanging around a barbershop, Ken? Well, I'm a cemetery salesman, I sell cemetery lots
8: <laughs> <laughs>
33: To barbers? I can explain that to you. See, I'm a member of the S-P-E-B-S-Q-S-A. Oh, that explains it very well, yeah. <laughs> well, now you're a member of that and it keeps you away. I want you to repeat it for me. The S-P-E-B-S-Q-S-A. That's the Society for the Preservation and Encouragement of Barbershop Quartet Singing in America, and it's incorporated. <laughs> hey, being a member of that affects your marriage in any way? Well, it uh, keeps me away from home quite a while. You see, it It takes quite a bit of time, rehearsals and whatnot, to have a pretty good quartet.
32: Look, Kenny, uh, are you sure this quartet bit is just an excuse to get a night out once in a while? uh? (laughs) Well, it could be. It could help. (laughs) (laughs) Look, uh, I thought four guys in a barbershop just got together in a barbershop to sing and started singing. Isn't that the way it usually works?
10: Well,
27: that's what I thought, too, Jay. Uh But honestly, they get a number and they rehearse and rehearse. And a gal likes to have her husband around the house once in a while. Yeah. Honestly, I, I hope I never hear Sweet Adeline again
32: <laughs> <laughs> I can sympathize with you, Mona It probably gets to sound like a singing commercial oh. after a while Tell me, do you, do you two have any children?
27: Yes, we have two little girls Gay and Ray, aged three and two years old
32: Oh, does Daddy sing the girls to
33: sleep? Huh?
27: No, that's my chore He does all of his singing away from home
32: oh.
33: That's good practice for her, Jay You see, we intend to have our own little quartet uh, when the kids grow up
32: well, wonderful. <laughs> Sounds like there's gonna be perfect harmony in your home from now on. And best wishes to you. Thank you. For each of our ladies, today here's a beauty gift from Richard Hudnett at Fifth Avenue. Everything you need for your hair. Enriched cream shampoo, Richard Hudnett Cream Rinse, and the wonderful new Richard Hudnett Home Permanent. And now for the most restful sleep you've ever enjoyed, here's a Westinghouse electric blanket. <sighs> Remember, you can <laughs> be sure of the <that laughs> Got
8: Thank what you, you wanted.
32: Good. Oh. And to help prepare meals, Mrs. Hughes, a wonderful Miramatic pressure pan oh, good. and a completely automatic Miramatic electric percolator. Oh. Good. Now, in just a few minutes, you'll get a crack at our big family fortune jackpot, filled with wonderful prizes and two hundred and fifty dollars in cash. Thanks for being with us. Thank you.
18: Monday Night Means Music on NBC.
1: It Pays to Be Married was a daytime game show in which married couples told stories of obstacles they overcame to build a healthier relationship. They were later quizzed for cash and prizes. Hosted by Jay Stewart, it first came to Mutual's Airwaves on September 28, 1953. On March 8, 1954, the celebrity guests were Phil Harris and Alice
18: Faye. The Telephone Hour always has a well-known guest soloist to add to your musical enjoyment. The program is made to order for a restful Monday night. When you tune for The Voice of Firestone Monday evenings on the NBC radio network, you're treated to music that never grows old, as performed by noted guest artists and Howard Barlow's orchestra. The Voice of Firestone has been entertaining radio audiences on the NBC network for more than 25 years. And each Monday night, millions of listeners make it a special habit to tune to this great program. Enjoy NBC's Monday Night of Music tonight and every week on this same station.
32: Now we'd like you to meet our next guest on at Phase to be Married. For this specially recorded interview, we went across the hall here at NBC in Hollywood to the wonderful Phil Harris Alice Faye Show. And there we met Phil Harris and Alice Faye.
34: Hi, Jay. It's awfully nice to be with you. Good to have you. Hi, Jay. Good to see you. Thank you, Alice. First of all, I'd like
32: you to know how much I enjoyed your radio program today. And secondly, as MC of It Pays to Be Married, I want you to know that I've done a little research on your married life. The records say that you've been married to each other for 13 years,
7: and you have two lovely daughters. That's right, Jay. Alice and Phyllis. Alice is 11. Phyllis is 9.
34: Nice-looking kids, too. I've seen their pictures. Well, I'll tell you something about them. They're not only the most talented kids that you've ever seen, but they are the most... Beautiful, Jay, that you will ever see. <laughs> they look exactly like me. <laughs> well, Bill, uh, for two
32: people in, in show business, you've had a very happy marriage. And earlier you told me that, that you and Alice reached an agreement when you were first married that helped bring about that happiness.
34: So well, a... I think it did, uh, Jay. We'd been around an awful lot, and we didn't want to make a mistake. We wanted our marriage to be happy. And I was on the road a lot with a band, and that took me out on a lot of one-nighters. Consequently, I had very little home life for many, many years. And Alice was in pictures, and as you know, doing the musical things such as she did, uh, they require an awful lot of work and a lot of study. And we knew that that wouldn't work, so I said, Alice, what are we going to do? If we're going to be happy, we've at least got to arrange it so we're together. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, Phil, I have an idea I think will work. You give up the band business. In other words, you stop going on the road with the band... And I'll give up pictures, and I think we can have a very pleasant home life. And I said, well, that all sounds very good, but uh, how will we get bread, you know? Because, uh,
8: <laughs> you know, being in
34: love is one thing, and being hungry is another.
8: <clears throat> so she
34: said, well, Phil, I'm sure it'll work out some way. Anyway, let's try it. And we were very, very fortunate, Jay, in as much as we got the idea and we created our little program and thanks to these nice people and all of our wonderful listeners, it turned out successful and it made our marriage a very happy one.
32: turned out more than successful. That radio show enabled you to be together, have a happy home life, and in 1942, your first baby daughter was born. Phil, the day your first baby was born, the doctor attending Alice, who was a good friend of yours and an admirer of your musical talents, allowed you to witness the drama of your baby's birth at the hospital. Do you mind telling us about
5: that?
34: Well, I think that was one of the most important moments in my life, Jay. Like you say, this fellow was a very dear friend of mine, our doctor, and we were at the hospital at the time and they were all getting ready to go inside. In fact, they'd just wheeled Alice up and she was having a pretty hard time. Mm-hmm. And he said, I would like for you to come in. And I said, no, I, I don't know. I just, you know, a lot of things going through my mind and it was our first child and my first experience and I, I he kept insisting and I said, no, I, I don't think I'd care for that. So they closed the door, and something came into my mind. I don't know what it was, but I figured that it'd be a lot better to go inside rather than walk up and down the corridor drawing my own pictures, so to speak. So I knocked on the door, and I said, I've decided to come in. And they gave me a real high chair right up over the operating table, and I watched the whole thing. And uh, when baby Alice was born, she, uh, well, was almost lifeless and was gray, just the color of cement. And they brought her over. The doctor, the deliverer, brought her over and put her on this table right in front of me. And um, he started working over, and I can't explain what went through my mind because I really don't know. It was like being in a coma. But um, he started, and, and uh, well, I just, I just thought it was impossible. But all of a sudden, I'll never forget it, The little pink started in her toes and then just slowly worked up to her knees and then on up and then covered the entire body and just as it completed up at the top of her head she let out a little whimper and this doctor looked at me and he says Phil you can have your band and guy lombardo's because this is the sweetest music i ever heard <laughs>
3: well, that was the
32: Phil and Alice, you heard sweet music again when your second child, Phyllis, was born in 1944. Mm Mm-hmm. Isn't that right? That's
34: right. I must say that uh, we got a pretty swell home. We got two pretty swell kids, and we're very proud. That I'm sure of. Any
7: comment from Mother now? Well, Jay, uh, I must tell you this, that through the birth of of our two daughters, Phil was a very, very brave father. (laughs) (laughs) As a matter of fact, Jay... It hasn't been too long ago that he said, uh, I wouldn't mind going through it again. <laughs> well, well,
32: Bill, Bill Harris and Alice Faye, you are successfully combining home and career, and through your fine radio program, you're bringing wholesome fun and entertainment into the living rooms of America. It's been a great pleasure to have you here on It Pays to Be Married today. <laughs> Well, then, Alice, so those nice daughters of yours can keep themselves looking lovely for Mom and Dad, we'd like you to have an attractive wardrobe of one dozen ship-and-shore blouses.
7: Oh, wonderful, Jay. Love it. They're
32: real pretty, and there's at least one for each day of the week. And also for yourself, Alice, here's a set of Napier's exclusively designed fashion jewelry. (gasps) Oh, There's earrings, bracelet, and beautiful necklace. It's jewelry by Napier, makers of the best Fifth Avenue fashion jewelry and silverware. Thank you. And friend Phil, I understand that you're a real golf fan and that you and Alice have a home in Palm Springs adjoining the golf course, so to make your work on the front lawn easy and give you many carefree hours, on the golf course, here for you is an Excello 18-inch power mower.
34: Well, I'd much rather have the blouses, but...
8: <laughs> I can't
34: use the mower, Jay, because I'm in the rough most of the time. <laughs>
32: Well, you find the Fire mower, you get easy running, dependable, trouble free performance. For Excelsiors are constructed of top quality materials. Again, our thanks for being with us, and many happy, successful years of married life to you both. Thank, Thank you, Jay. You. Thank you. <laughs> By
1: 1954, Harrison and Fay were national icons. After years on Jack Benny's and later his own program. Phil Harris's character was one of the most established in the entertainment business. However, the Harrison Faye show's rating that season was under
18: 3.3.
1: With radio on its way out, NBC canceled the program at the end of the season. The last episode aired on June 18, 1954. It pays to be married would shift to NBC before being canceled in October of 1955. Just
18: ask your employer to save a few dollars from your paychecks. Every time enough money accumulates, your employer buys your savings bonds for you automatically. Now, those mat- uh, those bonds mature in less than 10 years and pay you $4 for every $3 you put in. The payroll savings plan can mean extra money for your future. Join today. You'll feel more secure tomorrow if you buy United States savings bonds today. Now,
32: here we go with that family fortune jackpot. In the jackpot today, there's an exclusive, luxurious, cameo-carved Chevy Chase mohawk carpet. Lush pile, satiny-cut service, a magnificent, deep-sculptured carpet from the looms of mohawk. Now, there's a big, beautiful tap-and-gas range with the exclusive chrome-lined oven that gives you cooking and baking at its best. And the fat in the family fortune, $250 in cash. Now, inasmuch as Phil Harris and Alice Faye were interviewed outside of our studio today... Only one couple, Mr. and Mrs. Hughes, will be trying for that family fortune jackpot. I'll just ask you one question. I'll give you ten seconds. If you can answer it, the jackpot's yours, Mr. and Mrs. Hughes. Are you ready? Yes, sir. All right, listen carefully. What nation in the world raises more cattle than any other nation? One answer between you. Uh, One answer from you. Two of you. No help. Russia. Gee, I'm sorry that was the answer you gave Mr. Hughes. It's India. India. India (laughs) raises almost twice as many as second place United States. Well, (laughs) doggone it, nobody got the jackpot there, but we'll carry the prizes over until tomorrow and hope (laughs) somebody wins them then. Thanks again, folks. (laughs) Be sure to be with us again tomorrow at the same time for more interesting couples, folks just like you, and the true stories recorded from the married lives. Until then, this is Jay Stewart reminding you that it pays to be married.
5: Tonight, enjoy the Band of America on the NBC Radio Network.
28: In the beginning, when that show first came on, it was live, and I suspect that you had to do at least one, possibly two broadcasts every week. Was there a West Coast and an East Coast, or did you just do one? That's right, we did. I think the show really came into its own when Rexall came in, because right. the uh, first of all, all the... well,
7: we were rolling then. I yeah. We really uh, had it. I we had, had tremendous writers, too, yeah. and it was all terrific. It was really going.
28: Ray Singer and Dick Chevrolet. Yeah, they were terrific. You came in at a just perfect time for radio, 46. Yeah, right. But by the time you left in 54, so much television had come in on this. Well, Phil wouldn't do it. I'm sorry. I think that's one thing I really am sorry for, Uh that we didn't go
7: into television. But he didn't want to do it. He couldn't see another family show
28: on tv he was afraid it's too bad because i would say that the phil harris alice face show was not another family show it was no, a very special it show. it was
7: very it was and, really fun
28: and your personalities could have easily translated to uh, yeah, to he television couldn't see it, you couldn't tell him that well, maybe he didn't want all the extra work tv but, is a hard i don't know thing. he did have a hard time really didn't he for a while or running doing the benny show and then boom immediately uh, oh yeah Doing yeah, the in the rehearsals and everything,
1: yeah. For more information on the Phil Harris and Alice Faye Show, tune into either Breaking Walls episode 108 or 113.
9: Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time
5: radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious
31: old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of
6: time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcasts from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com.
8: And now back to Breaking Walls. You also did Johnny Dollar.
6: Do you have any recollections of that show? Now, that was pretty early, Johnny Dollar.
4: I tell you what, that's where I first met Edmund O'Brien. We became great friends. He was Johnny Dollar. Then there was another Johnny Dollar uh, named John Lund. Mm-hmm. And then there was another one named Bob Bailey, and maybe there was another one after that. But through the years, it was funny every time they got in the soup. I, uh, you know, uh, I forget who produced it. Jack Johnston. That's right. Right. And there was somebody else before him, maybe Norm Macdonald or somebody, but. They would give me a ring because I knew the format so well. I could write it quickly and make it work. Lo and behold, I find out that I own more of Johnny Dollar than CBS does now. I own all the scripts I ever wrote for them. And we have discussed from time to time making a television series out
5: of it. But that's all we've done is discuss it. Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum. The refreshing, delicious treat that gives you chewing enjoyment presents, for your listening enjoyment, John Lund as... Johnny Dollar.
7: Tom
11: Benson, Johnny. You like traveling?
5: Not particularly. Why?
11: About six months ago, we wrote two policies. A man and his wife, Harrison, and Maida Langley. Double indemnity. 125000 each.
5: You got a death claim already?
11: No, but we're liable to. Got a letter from the underwriter. It says Langley claims somebody's trying to murder both him and his wife. Where do I go? Sundown Rubber Plantation, Kuala Lumpur, Federated States of Malaya.
5: Well, I should have my passport around here somewhere. The makers of Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum bring you John Lund and another adventure of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Friends, the makers of Wrigley's Spearmint Gum present these weekly adventures of Johnny Dollar because they know that millions of you enjoy Johnny Dollar. That's true of Wrigley's Spearmint Chewing Gum, too.
1: Often written by the just-hurt E. Jack Newman, the fourth in, actor off, to voice Johnny Dollar, John Lund, the grabbed the role in November of 1952.
5: Gum somehow makes time pass more pleasantly.
1: Lund had starred with Olivia de Havilland in To Each John, His Own, with Marlene Dietrich feet in, feet in A Foreign Affair, and with Betty Hutton in The Perils of Pauline.
8: And satisfaction.
1: In spite of radio's falling ratings, in March of 1953, Wrigley's Gum signed on as sponsor. On Tuesdays at 9 p.m., Dollar peaked in May with a 7.3 rating. Among the writers who contributed scripts along with Newman were Les Crutchfield, Blake Edwards, Gil Dowd, Morton Fine, and David Friedkin. On March 8, 1954, Dollar's expense account took him to Southeast Asia.
5: Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Home Office, Washingtonian Life Insurance Company, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the terrified Tuan matter. Expense account item one, $1,043.50. Airfare and incidentals between Hartford and Kuala Lumpur. I checked into the Coliseum Hotel and then walked over to Batu Road and the offices of George Alistair, the rubber and tin broker who doubles in brass as your Malayan representative.
25: Oh, filthy climate, Dollar, filthy. No man in full possession of his God given senses would ever live out here. I don't understand
5: why you came. Well, you wrote about the possible forthcoming murder of some policyholders, Alistair.
25: Oh, yes, the Harrison Langley business. How to rough this talk about murder. Dismal obsession of disordered mentality. I wrote that letter only in the line of duty. You don't think there's anything to it? Oh, beastly nonsense. A jungle's breaking Langley down. He's a weakling to start with. No moral fiber. Uh, uh, turn that fan up a bit, huh? Yes, fellas' disintegrating under the strain of trying to run that rubber plantation. Then there haven't been any attempts to kill Langley or his wife? Oh, no, sheer delusion. Concepts of a diseased mind. Uh, checked with the police. No reports made. No. Jungle's got him. That and the filthy terrorists. His plantation's in terrorist country? Hmm. Uh, Sundown's some 45 miles north of here. Everything north of is in terrorist domain. Filthy blighters. Ambushing traffic, attacking villages, plantations, murdering, burning, yeah. slashing rubber trees. No man's in his right mind would live in this filthy country.
5: Yeah. How do I get out there?
25: I hire an armor car. Only way to travel through the jungle. Take your own chances, though. Might be blown up by landmines. I won't take any responsibility. I'm not asking you to. So you You make your investigation if you have to, Dollar. Won't get you anywhere. At a waste of time. Then go back home to the States, out of this filthy climate, beastly country. Uh huh. If you hate this country
5: so much, Alistair, why do you stick around?
25: Uh, very good question. I asked myself that many times. Always came up with the same answer. What's that? making too much money.
5: Well, that sounds reasonable. Expense account item two, $120. Rental of a 1949 Ford, completely equipped with armor plating and bulletproof glass. The jungle trip was hot, but fairly uneventful. And only the barbed wire enclosure and the armed Malayan guards at the entrance to the sundown plantation gave evidence that this was anything but a quiet, peaceful land.
15: Good afternoon, Juan. May I have your identification, please? Yeah, sure. Here it is. Hmm. Juan Dalla. You are here to speak with Juan Langley? That's the general idea, yeah. I think perhaps it would be wise for you to speak with Juan Crawford first. Crawford? Who's he? He is the plantation overseer, Swan.
5: Why should I talk to him instead of Langley?
15: Swan Langley is not well at the moment. He is still suffering from the shock. What shock is that? His wife, Swan. She has disappeared. Well, in that case, if you don't mind, I
5: think I'll see Mr. Langley. Screen door, I could see part of the interior of Langley's house. There wasn't a sign of anyone around, but it looked cool and inviting in there. Too good a bet to pass up.
29: You take one more step into this house and I'll kill you.
5: Well, thanks for the warning. I mean it.
29: Every word of it. You're not going to murder me the way you did, Maida. No, not a bit of it. You didn't expect me to be waiting here ready for you when you came sneaking in, did you?
5: No, I'll bet you didn't. You win on all counts, Langley. Now, suppose you put that thing down and let's start talking sense. Not a move,
29: I said. I know you're kind. Sneaky, tricky. How to get me off balance.
5: Look, my name's Dollar. I'm an insurance investigator. Washingtonian Life sent me out. You're
29: lying. George Allister told me they wouldn't
5: do anything about it.
29: Wouldn't send a man halfway around the world to help me. He was right.
5: I've got my identification here to prove it.
29: You have identification?
5: How do you think I got past those guards at the gate? Here. Take a look for yourself. What are you? Thanks. Hmm. Thirty-eight caliber Webley, isn't it? All right, go ahead. Use it. I think I'd rather have a drink first. Over there, the liquor cabinet. Thanks. You might take a good look at those papers while I'm mixing one.
29: But these papers say you're. You're Johnny Dollar, an insurance investigator working for. Why? I'm sorry, Dollar. Dreadfully sorry. Please
5: accept my apologies. Forget it. Now, suppose you tell me what this is all about. Oh, it's been a nightmare, Dollar.
29: Constant threats against my life, terrorist raids, living in fear 24 hours a day sleeping with a gun at my side, seeing this plantation ruined before my very eyes and helpless to stop it. It's no wonder I'm not responsible for my actions.
5: Langley, it's not your plantation I'm interested in right now. It's your wife. Maida. Well, she's disappeared, hasn't she? Oh, yes. Yes, of course she has.
29: Good, good Lord,
5: man, what do you think's got me all upset this way? I was beginning to wonder. Well, let's start with your wife and go on from there. What makes you think that she's been murdered? the trouble here, Mr. Langley. Trouble? One of the yard men told me he heard a shot fired. There was, accidentally. Guns don't go off around here without a reason, mister. There's nothing to get excited about, Crawford. Mr. Dollar's an insurance investigator. Insurance investigator? So the vultures are gathering for the feast before the body's even cold. That's enough, Crawford.
29: Nobody's asking you for your opinion.
5: I don't need to be asked about something like this. If Mrs. Langley was my wife, I wouldn't be wasting my time talking to insurance men. Then let me remind you that Mrs. Langley is not your wife. Even though
29: I'm certain the two of you wish he were.
5: Well, you dirty old okay, little... Okay, Crawford, hold it. If you've got anything to say, suppose you tell it to me. Yes. That's a good idea, Crawford. Instead of my saying
29: anything, why don't you tell Mr. Dollar all you know about the disappearance of my wife? That might help clarify
5: things in a hurry. Okay. I'll be outside in the jeep, Mr. Dollar. I'll take you on a personally conducted tour. That way you'll be sure of getting the truth for once. Well... There's part of your answer. Yeah, how's that?
29: Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Crawford's in love with my wife. They've been carrying on behind my back for months. If anyone has a motive for trying to kill me, it's Crawford.
5: Yeah, or it could be the other way around. That's been going on for three, four months now, Mr. Dollar. This crazy idea Mr. Langley has that somebody's trying to murder him and his wife. What makes you think somebody isn't? Hey, he says he gets threatening notes and telephone calls. Only nobody else has ever seen them or heard him talking to anyone.
8: Uh huh.
5: Now, well, what about Mrs. Langley? Oh, he was driving her nuts. Walking around afraid of a shadow. Carrying a gun every place he went, spying on her and me, trying to find out if something was going on between us. Uh, was there? If you knew Mrs. Langley, you wouldn't even think of asking that question. But I don't. And I'm still trying to find out what happened to her.
17: Well, I'll show you.
5: Hey, you see where the barbed wire's been cut? Those young rubber saplings have been slashed? A terrorist raid? Looks like it, doesn't it? Well, what's this got to do with Mrs. Langley? The guard who met you at the gate, Bandar. He found the fence and trees that way, making his rounds this morning. He also found a sleeve torn from one of Mrs. Langley's blouses. It was covered with blood. And no one has seen Mrs. Langley since last night. You figure the terrorists took her with him? I think Mr. Langley staged the whole thing to make it look like that. Yeah? Why? He's in debt. A 50,000-pound note on the plantation's coming due in 60 days. His wife's insurance would cover that nicely. Well, it's an interesting theory. Let's go back, huh?
15: Mr. Langley, Bandar. He has left for Kuala Lumpur, some ten minutes ago. Why? Did he say? Oh, no, sir. I only know that one Langley received a telephone call, and then he left. Did he leave any message for me? Uh, I do not know if it was a message, sir, but uh, he made some strange comment concerning yourself. Oh? What was it? He was rather excited. I did not get all the words, but... It was something about giving you something to really investigate. And that was all? Yes, sir, that was all. Then he took a forty-five caliber automatic from the gun rack and left. Where's the phone, Banda?
25: Yes, that's right, Colonel I did speak with Langley a few minutes ago. Uh, Nothing important. Just a routine business question about a shipment of rubber.
5: You're sure that's all it was, Alistair?
25: Well, of course, ma'am. What's the matter, Dollar? Is filthy heat getting you down, too?
5: Did either of you say anything about Mrs. Langley?
25: Maida? Yes, she was mentioned casually.
5: Casually? And he didn't tell you that she's disappeared, possibly been murdered?
25: You being serious, Dollar?
5: Did he tell you anything about it?
25: No, not a word. Matter of fact, I was the only one who mentioned Maida. Perfectly casual reference, as I told you.
5: Well, what did you say, Alistair?
25: Merely that i just finished having a drink with her at the Coliseum Bar. Mm-hmm.
1: Wrigley sponsored Dollar until August. Lund's last episode was the Upjohn Matter on September 19th.
5: Friends, here's a suggestion that'll help you go through a busy day feeling more relaxed and satisfied.
1: It seemed that like many other radio shows, Johnny Dollar's time on the air was coming to an unremarkable end. However, the show would be revived the following year. Bob Bailey would star, and Jack Johnstone would direct. What do you remember about the changing character of Johnny Dollar when Bob Bailey took over? Well, of course, I knew
0: nothing of the show until I took over. I'd never even heard it. I knew John Lund, but I'd used him on Hollywood Star Playhouse or one of those shows. And Eddie O'Brien. Eddie incidentally called me one day after Bob Bailey took over and said, would you give me Bob Bailey's phone number? I just want to tell you and tell him that I think he's doing one hell of a great job and so much better than anything I could have done, that it's which is very
2: nice.
5: You'll really enjoy it. So do what millions do.
1: For more information on Bob Bailey's run as Johnny Dollar, tune into Breaking Walls, episode
5: one hundred
8: two
4: was doing a lot of work around cbs and i got in those days it was unbelievable we were doing 15 averaging maybe 10 to 15 shows a week a lot of it was at cbs i never got involved in the comedy shows so i did all of the dramatic shows i started doing the opening voice in it frankly i don't remember how it started but i did an awful lot of them
1: in march of 1954 escape was still airing on cbs Although it was frequently dropped and moved around the network schedule, it was popular and cheap enough to consistently come back. During its heyday, Escape was produced and directed by William N. Robeson.
35: The first story editor on Escape was a man named John Meston. John Meston went on from being story editor at CBS out of the coast to being creator of Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, oh yes. And John Meston was followed by John Dunkel, a very, very intellectual type fellow. And it was John Meston and John Dunkel, who were principally responsible for the selection of the material and the acquisition of it. Their contribution was superb, practically never did I disagree with them. So if you were complimenting the quality of the material on Escape, those were the two men who were responsible for it. The quality of the production was mine when I was doing it, other people also did the show through the years. Mm -hmm.
1: Bartell was a frequently featured actor.
23: All I know is that some of the finest roles and some of the most classic stories came up on that show. That was Norm Macdonald's show, by the way. Bill Robeson did it for a while. Working with Bill Robeson was always interesting because there was a lunch break. The first two acts would be rehearsed in tremendous detail with extreme synchronization of sound effects and balance and everything, and after lunch, We never got around to the third act of the dress rehearsal. (laughs) (laughs) And so the last part of the show was always sort of winged.
8: (laughs) Probably the best part.
1: Les Crutchfield often penned scripts for the series. Escape's original assistant director was Norman MacDonald. He later became famous for being at the helm of Gunsmoke. I first
2: came to know Les when... He was still working at Caltech as an engineer. But at that time, which must have been 46 or 47, he came in to see Bill Robeson with a script for a Columbia workshop, which Bill bought, and Les was on his way toward being a very successful writer. Les worked with me on Escape, Romance, a number of shows, and when we did start Gunsmoke, it just was obvious that Les would have to be part of the family, which indeed he was. Les was a warm and very funny and very charming man. He was his own man and he did what he wanted, when he wanted, so if you needed him desperately to do a script he might be available or he might have been on his way to Africa. And you really never knew, but when he was in town he wrote well and he was dependable.
1: The 218th episode was entitled Violent Night. It starred William Conrad, Joyce McCluskey, Don Diamond, Ben Wright, Edgar Barrier, Michael Ann Barrett, Dick Beals, and Byron Kane.
31: Tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape.
2: Escape. Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure.
31: You are kneeling in the church of a Caribbean village seeking the sanctuary it might offer, while slowly, walking down the aisle, carefully studying each bowed head, is the brute of a man who has come to kill you.
23: Listen
2: now as Escape brings you Les Crutchfield's story, Violent Night.
31: suddenly, wide awake. It's a trick you learn around the back countries of the Caribbean. If you want to stay alive... I didn't move. I didn't make a sound. Just stared into the darkness and listened. Then it came again. Somebody was on the veranda. I slid off the cot reached for my pistol on the table and stood up. (laughs) Barefooted, I moved quietly across the room and stopped by the shutters.
20: Senor O'Gready.
31: Who is it? Pepita. It is Pepita. Pepita?
20: I am come to warn you of terrible danger.
31: Are you alone? Si. All right, wait a second. Quickly. What's wrong? What's the matter?
20: Look. Toward the village, toward Monte Miguel.
31: What? What? Fire. What's burning?
20: The estacion of the police. The Federalista Army Barrack. Other places. It is a revolution, senor.
31: Revolution. Who is it? Who's behind it? Alecran. What?
20: He has come out of the jungle again. One thousand men are follow him, and now more from the village. He has guns, trucks, cars, radios. He has called himself governor of the district.
31: Governor? He won't last 48 hours.
20: Everyone say it is revolution all over the country. You must leave your plantation and go quickly.
31: Pepita, you, uh, you think he still remembers?
20: Alacran will never forget. Not ever. Not before one of you is dead.
31: Yeah, maybe you're right. All right, thanks, Pepita. Thanks for everything. Ten minutes later, I lay hidden in a clump of bamboo by the irrigation ditch 30 yards from my house, watching a convoy of army trucks swing in from the highway and roar up the road toward the plantation. I could have struck out then, run away, but I had to know the odds, know whether Alicron was making it personal, whether he still remembered. The truck skidded to a stop, men with rifles piled out, circled the house, spotlights cut through the night, lit up my bungalow, probing at the shutters. But I didn't see him until he stepped into the circle of lights and called out,
25: Mr. O'Grady, Mr. Barry O'Grady. Alicron.
9: You're wasting our time, Mr. O'Grady. You may as well come out.
31: Educated in the States, but as cunning and cruel as the wildest Indian in the bush.
25: Are you afraid of me, Mr. O'Brady? Are you afraid to come out and greet an old friend who has not forgotten you for a minute?
31: Alacron, leader of a revolution, self styled governor of the district. And he'd taken time out to lead this raid personally. Yes, Pepito was right. He hadn't forgotten. He blasted the bolt off my door with a tommy gun and then with a half a dozen of his men, he plunged into the house. It was time to get out. I'd wanted to know the odds and now I knew them. I didn't have a chance.
25: You know why I like radio? The words uh, made your imagination work and you built a million dollar set just like that in your mind. And then I like the people in radio, generally speaking, Mm -hmm. except George Peroni. Uh,
7: I like George Peroni, too. Listen,
25: you had to be able to read. You had to be
5: a, a literate person to work in radio. Some very nice people there. And then I liked, because later on I did a lot of film work and I had to do
25: fights. I loved the idea of going into a radio show. And sun... just the, Here's the big fight scene Let the sun <coughs> <into> it. <coughs> That's
7: it
8: <laughs>
25: mm-hmm.
7: no, no, no. Weren't you the one, Don That we always hesitated to Have you in a dying scene Because it would always take five minutes
8: <laughs>
31: <laughs> I ran for nearly two miles Through my coffee groves Along the banks of the ditches through the patches of bush before I finally played off. I was beside a narrow road leading back into the hills. I dropped down by the edge of it and tried to get my wind back. Alicron. For two years he'd waited. And now he was coming after me. He'd been trying to start a revolt then. I dragged him away from my workman, taken his gun away from him and beaten him to a pulp. And now he was back in control of the whole district with a wolf pack at his heels. And then suddenly, I, I noticed the headlights of a car coming down the road from the hills. The lights were too close together and too low to the ground for an army truck. There were ranches up in the hills, resorts. It might be a private car. It was worth a chance. I worked feverishly. The car was close now and moving fast. I gathered an armful of brush, threw it into the road, struck a match, and set fire to it. And then I dropped down in the ditch and waited. All right, easy now. Don't move. Who are you?
20: What do you want?
31: I want your car.
20: No, it is impossible. Let me go or Oh, I'll...
31: no, you don't. Let go of that.
20: Stop it. Stop it. You're hurting me. Take your hands off.
31: Thanks. Well, that's a lot of gun for a lady. Well, we'll take care of that.
20: You fool! Do you know who I am? No. I am the daughter of the governor of this district.
31: you what? It's
20: true. I am the daughter...
31: I'd heard he had a daughter, but who'd ever expect that fat pig to have one that looks like you?
20: I promise you, senor, if you go on with this, I will see that you are shot against a wall.
31: <laughs> You're too late. Your father already has that idea. Or more <laughs> likely a worse one. Ah. You know I think you're going to come in awfully handy before morning.
20: If you think you What do are I going call
31: to... you? What's your name? Maria. All right Maria, let's get this straight. I got one chance in a thousand of staying alive and if I can help that chance I'll do anything. You understand? No, please. Now we're going to get out of here. We're going to get out together. Whatever happens. Your father gets me and I get you. All right, now get the car started. We came off the side road two miles from Monte Miguel, crossed the main highway and took the old road toward San Vicente. It was 110 miles to the capital, but the sports car was fast. It could outrun any army vehicle Alcatraz's men might have. And there was a good chance he hadn't yet blockaded the San Vicente Highway. Well, it was a good dream. It lasted for two miles. Then it popped like a soap bubble.
20: In the road ahead, senor, lights, trucks men moving what do you want me to do
31: brakes hit the brakes come on and get this thing turned around and make it fast uh-huh. Amigos. Sí. Sí. all right come on step on it let's get out of right. here come on faster oh, that was close plenty close Well, we're still lucky. We could have barged straight into that. Well, they blocked us, but at least they didn't get us. And we still got a chance of circling back. But what? what's, what's wrong? What is it?
20: I don't know. I'm not doing anything to
31: the No, Wait a minute. Yeah, yeah, I can smell it. A bullet must oh. have smashed open the gas tank.
20: We we're out of petrol? Yeah.
31: Get it over to the side. All right. No, farther, clear over to the canal bank. The irrigation ditch, go on. All right. Come on, get out. Come on, hurry.
3: What are we going to do?
31: Here, give me a hand. We're going to get it rolling.
3: Come on, into the ditch. All
31: right, come on, let's go.
20: Here, what do you mean? They'll
31: be along here any second. Find where we sank the car come after us. We don't have much time. Now, come on. Let's get across that ditch.
20: In the water? No. I will not do it. I will not go into the water. Oh,
31: you won't. All right.
20: Uh, Put me down. Put me down.
31: Stop. Hold your breath. Uh, Now, just take it easy. Quit fighting and relax, will you? I'll get you across. It's only 20 feet wide. All right, easy now. All right, here we go. Now grab the bank.
20: Oh, it takes me all my life. I'm going to kill you.
31: Maybe not. I might have to kill you first. Now come on.
20: I am not going into that jungle with you. No matter what you do to me, I am not going.
31: Come on, move. Alicron had outmaneuvered me, outflanked me. There was no use trying to break south toward the capital. He had the whole area sewed up. So I decided on a gamble. I turned back, head for the last place on earth he'd look for me the village of Montemigalot It was nearly midnight when we entered the village. I kept a tight grip on Maria's arm and hurried her through the back streets and alleys, heading toward Pepita's room on the other side of town. Though we didn't make it. A patrol of rebels came around the corner and moved toward us. We couldn't turn and run. We couldn't go on. We were trapped. But we'd stopped in front of a house built flush against the street. The door was only a few feet away. I stepped over and tried it. It was unlocked. I drew my gun and pushed the door open. All right, come on there's no one in. Inside, quick.
20: What are you going to do?
31: Wait for the patrol to pass. Now be quiet. Here they come. Not a sound, Maria. Shh. Why? Oh, that was lucky. Well, (laughs) double lucky, in fact. The head man here has gone out and left some clothes all ready for me. Pantalones, camisa, sarape, sombrero. Now, if we can find something for you.
20: What do you mean?
31: Well, dressed like we are, we don't have a chance. Ah, here. Here, this ought to do it. Catch you. Now, here's a shawl for you. You can throw it over your head and keep it around your face.
20: I am going to change my clothes. Get
31: behind that curtain and do it any way you want, but get into that dress and do it fast.
1: As good as escape was, the writing was on the wall. With no sponsorship forthcoming, the last episode would air on September 25th, 1954.
35: The American people got a new toy. The men who owned the toy knew it was going to cost a great deal of money. And so they phased out radio. I told you earlier the story of the $80 savings they would make by moving suspense to New York. This is, they've got down to that. It got down from a 13 piece orchestra, to 11 piece orchestra, an 8 piece orchestra, to a, a trio, and finally to the organ. So it was that kind of attrition that occurred. And they killed it because you can spin records, and you have a disc jockey, or you can automate the whole day's programming, and you have a newsman and a disc jockey, and you operate. Because people went home and looked at their new toy. They weren't listening to radio. And now, as I think I said, you have a generation of people who don't know how to listen, who must have a picture to bolster up.
0: They miss the beauty of the human voice, which is something I think you always... Well, they miss the
35: beauty of their own imaginations. It's too much effort to think. Well, that tube is up there. You don't have to think at all. You just sit there and eat that stuff and drink that beer and get fat. But, you know, we're never going to pull those men off the moon. No, we've got to go now to Mars. I don't know why. You know, you kill a lot of men that way eventually. But once you've made that step, you can't go back. You made the step to television, you can't go back to radio. A lot of us old poops will talk of, as we're talking now But my ten-year-old son couldn't care less about that.
33: Mary, no! God, let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course. The sound is coming from the
32: basement. It's all right. I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show no. me what.
26: Gotta get away from those eyes. Get away. Get away.
8: George. Get away. Are you attracted to the dark, fascinated by the dramatic, with a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, Then you should be listening to the podcast 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen.
27: Is it true that when you made most of your films, you wouldn't take star billing?
5: Never did, no, no. You
27: never took star billing? No. Why not?
5: Well, I think you put a burden on yourself,
6: you know. If the picture isn't any good. They say, well, why don't you get some help, you know?
27: What do they used to say? Such and such with Bing Crosby?
6: And, like, the high
5: society. with fraction out truth. Grace Kelly, Bing Crosby. You had third billing. Then yeah, Louis Armstrong. Yeah, I took the smallest I could get. And I think you last longer than I made some pictures that were terrible. If i had been up there all alone on the marquee, I'd have got the blame for them. You so get some other names in there.
27: They get the blame. Well, let
5: them take some <laughs> of the blame,
0: because I had some real eggs that I made.
5: A couple of them I never even
22: saw myself. Start you asking
5: a daisy.
27: In reading about you, you hear very often the same things about you. Bing is a loner. Bing has this ice curtain around. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. a
8: new picture. Yeah. yeah.
27: Bing takes care of Bing. This picture of a man who finds it very hard to give or receive emotion. Is that you? Uh,
5: I did. kind of embarrassed me. Too much emotion. I mean, I, I don't know where anybody could ever conceive of me as a loner. I know more people in more walks of life I think than probably anybody in show business.
27: But is it hard to get through to the inside?
5: I don't know. I don't think there's much to me to get don't through to, really? to find. If they, I think it's probably on the surface is what I am is apparent and obvious and.
27: Don't you think you're at all deep? No, no. Just a surface fella.
5: Just that, uh, yeah. I can't. Believe <laughs> I am though. I don't have any depth or any profound philosophies or thoughts or that's if that's what you mean by by depth.
1: By March of 1954, Bing Crosby had been in the public eye for more than two decades. He had numerous hit records and won an Oscar for Best Actor in Going My Way in 1944. On radio, Bing helped usher in primetime transcription with Philco in 1946. Crosby had been on CBS radio since 1949 and sponsored by General Electric since 1952. He was reluctant to star in a regular TV show, fearing overexposure.
5: Now, ladies and gentlemen, pursuant with our established policy of always being first with the latest, we now present the gentleman who last Thursday night won the Academy Award for the Best Supporting Actor for his performance of Maggio in the motion picture From Here to Eternity Mr. Frank Sinatra. Thank you, Bing. Here, Frank, now, just a minute. Let me make you comfortable here. Let me take your Oscar. I'll put it over here on the table. Uh, 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 don't drop it.
8: What
5: <laughs> are you carrying the Oscar around for, anyhow? Well, it isn't raining and I can't carry an umbrella. <laughs>
8: you get a cane
5: or something. You get this thing all time. Honestly, Frank, I'm certainly happy that you grabbed it. Well, it's wonderful, and I'd like to tell everyone listening that I'm really thrilled to receive this honor, Bing, and also that I'm very grateful. Well, I know you are. If I'm not me, I never lift another lasagna. <laughs> You can lift a lasagna? One at a time, never a whole dish. Well, <laughs> oh, Frank, speaking of lasagna and Lola Lola Brigida and other Italian delicacies, I'll bet there was great rejoicing at the Villa Capri last Thursday night, huh? Yeah, it's still raging. Viva la Franca, viva la forza, Franca. You know something, though, Bing? If I had lost, they were going to fly spaghetti at half mass for a whole year. Thank you. Well, so much for reaction at a local restaurant. Oh, no, no. There's more. What now? Dave Chasen sent me a cake with an Oscar on it. Good old Dave,
8: isn't he wonderful?
5: (laughs) Always comes through with something special for a special occasion. Now to switch to New York, tell me how did Toots Shore
34: take your victory? He was delirious. That's normal for Tootsie.
5: Tootsie is 250 pounds of pure love. Well, just a dash of cognac too. <laughs> Tell me, Frank, were you nervous when you went to the big dunes at the Pantages Theater last Thursday night? I was delirious, too. Naturally. All the excitement, sure. the searchlights, the crowds and the glamour and the shops, the staccato sound, the fingernails being nibbled. Oh, yes. <laughs> the popping of General Electric flashbulbs. Oh, we must have you back. <laughs> anytime, anytime. Now, Frank, not to intentionally bring this interesting discussion to a close, but would you like to sing a song for us now? Well, I don't know.
26: Should I sing a song or recite something from Hamlet?
5: I think Hamlet might be a little ponderous, Frank. A little, a little heavy. Ponderous. Yes. Why don't you open up with something light and frothy, like the boy stood on the burning deck, that you could you could ease into Hamlet later. What do you mean later? Uh, at the Villa Capri after the show. Oh. Nice. Okay. The boy stood on the burning deck. <clears throat> the boy stood on the burning God, deck. Scott, quick, cue this boy into a song. The flames <laughs> leaped up <laughs> around his neck. <And> <laughs> <and he laughs>
3: The 1954
1: Academy Awards were held on March 25th. That same day, RCA announced the first color television set. It was a 12 inch screen priced at $1,000, or roughly 10 grand today. On the Sunday's book ending those awards, Frank Sinatra was a guest on Bing's program. Frank would win a Best Supporting Actor Oscar from Maggio and From Here to Eternity. On this latter program from March 28th, Frank talks and jokes about his experience. The two are in rare form, especially with a trio of songs.
3: gets hit between the eyes love may be the ocean or a drop of rain soothing as a lotion or a constant pain you won't know what you've got till your heart's on a spot take a chance take a chance take a chance Love may be a double or a base on balls, tiny water bubble or Niagara Falls. Though the cards in the game never turn up the same, take a chance, take a chance, take a chance. Love may be a gray ball or a two-ton truck regal as a sable or a donald duck but you mustn't avoid what's as basic as Freud take a chance take a chance yeah So remembering this, when it's close as a kiss, take a chance, take a chance on love. Here's your chance, grab that chance, here is love.
5: That was Take a Chance, rendered by Frank Sinatra, a dramatic actor who also sings. <laughs> Very nice, Frank. You know, singing's fun. Always remember that. It may be a nice thing for you to fall back on someday.
8: <laughs>
5: oh, no, no, no. Listen, Bing, don't get me wrong. When you do a dramatic part in a picture, you kind of change. Yeah. A whole different thing comes over you. Yes, I know. I, I won an Oscar, too, you know. Oh, yeah. yes, I keep forgetting that. I don't. <laughs> Forgive me, I'm still confused. You know, the crowds and the crowd. Oh, and yes, the... and the GE flashbulbs popping. I know, I know. Come to think of it, Bing, I understand that you're working in a very dramatic picture right now. Yes, matter of fact, I am working in quite a serious piece. It's called Country Girl, and uh, in the picture with me are Grace Kelly and uh, William Holden. William Holden. Mm-hmm. Say that name sounds familiar. <laughs> Good, he's the guy who grabbed the Oscar for the best actor. Oh, yes, I'm confused. I'm Crosby.
26: <laughs> I've always wanted to meet you. I hope you're not disappointed. No, I'm confused. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh,
5: anyhow, Oscar, I mean, Frank, congratulations again on your winning the award, and uh, what do you say now we run through some old tunes, you know, like we did last week? Your remember? wish is my command. Friends, Mr. Sinatra and I will now sing a medley of three well-known selections. Till we meet again, meet me tonight in Dreamland, and there's a long, long trail. Mr. Trotter, if you please. Bye. <laughs> It was real smooth, real silky, boy. Thank you, Bing. It was real nice working with you. You'll we'll have to do it again. Now, I got a little business here with uh, Ken Carpenter. Uh,
23: here I am, Bing.
5: You seem to be awake. So I think it's safe to ask what the question for this evening is.
23: Well, the question tonight, Bing, is uh, what is the main difference between public and private enterprise? What separates the one concept from the other? Now, rein in your
5: horse here, pardon. Before we leave the starting gate, we best uh, define our terms.
23: Well, I'm, I'm sure we all know what private enterprise is, Bing. It's basically the system we live under here in America. Individuals manage their own affairs, their work, their spending, their saving, and investing. And public enterprise is the exact opposite. The, the state runs things instead of the individual. Uh, hmm? You hit the poodle right on the noodle, well, Bing. There's your <laughs> dog
5: gone right to join in the cornfield, Ken.
23: Uh, uh, get in there, with me. there. We'll get some mm-hmm. chucking done. A watermelon in the too. But to continue, the public enterprise system is often called collectivism. And in recent years, we've seen a whole rash of different types of collectivist states. The fascist regimes, for instance. Not to mention socialism and communism.
5: All these states differ in certain minor ways, in the degrees of completeness of government control.
23: And again, in the way they develop, by revolution or a gradual change and so on.
5: Yeah, Ken, but in the main, there is one mark that identifies the collectivist or public enterprise state.
23: And that mark is the soft peddling of personal incentive and competition. Easy to
5: explain, too, because as the government takes charge in one field after the other, It also takes over the power of decision that was once held by the individual, you
23: see? And as the power of the government grows, the area of individual choice narrows.
5: You know, Ken, a week or so ago, they held a general election in Russia. Russians all over the Soviet Union rushed eagerly to the polls. Arriving at the voting places, they were confronted by posters which read, Vote for Comrade Malenkov. The life you save may be your own.
8: Were there
5: really such posters? Probably not, but... That was only to help illustrate the point, Ken. That in Russia, no matter who runs for office, he's the guy that wins because you just ain't no one's going to oppose him. Well, why do the Russians go to the polls? Gives him something to do, gets him out of the house. <laughs> he's just sitting around listening to the samovars. Says, yeah. you know?
23: <laughs> "Big deal."
5: Big <laughs> deal. But Ken, we've discovered certain things in the working out of our own system of private enterprise, and. One is the absolute necessity of freedom for the individual.
23: That's right, Bing. And yet there are things that only the government can do.
5: Well, I guess you mean such things as our Army,
2: Navy,
23: and the Air Force. Mm Mm-hmm. And there are other things that are government-run, like the post office and uh, whole road-building public schools.
5: Yes, and the delicate, dangerous art of dog-catching.
23: <laughs> <laughs> Netting the collarless sweat.
5: <laughs> Luring the hound to the pound.
23: <laughs> <laughs> at any rate, we found out we get along better if business is left to the people who make it tick. Workers and managers, buyers and sellers. We have a more efficient operation, more goods, finer goods at lower cost. A higher standard of living, greater progress.
5: In other words, the people are served best, and they still have the greatest of all freedoms, the freedom to choose. But Ken, the Tempest keeps right on fidgeting here. We haven't reached a firm conclusion. Well, allow me, Bing. Our summationist is now
9: going to sum.
23: We've talked about private enterprise versus public enterprise, or collectivism. The difference being that in private enterprise, the individual manages his own working, spending, saving, and investing. Under a collectivist system, the government manages these activities. Here in America, we're essentially a private enterprise system because a free economy has proved itself to be the best for us. To sum it up in two words, it works. Ken, we said all that? We sure did.
5: Well, no wonder my lower lip is sagging like the wave on a swell barrel here. But Ken, you and I and my pendulous lower lip had better take a hiatus while John Scott and his enterprising crew breeze through that old favorite, The Breeze and I, formerly Andalusia
6: by La Cuona.
1: The series ended on May 30, 1954. With radio audiences in steep decline, Crosby decided against a weekly radio show. Bing's son Gary took over the time slot in June for 13 weeks. In November 1954, Bing returned to the airwaves with a weeknight 15-minute program. He spoke about all manner of different subjects and usually included three songs. Broadcasting Magazine estimated the production cost to be twenty-seven hundred dollars per episode.
27: Bing, you once refused to star in the Bing Crosby story. They wanted to make a story of your life, and oh, you said I think no. Dull. Do
5: you really? Oh, really? Do you a think you're a stu- dull man? Well, I think I'm very ordinary, man. People think that I'm humble or that I'm wallowing in humility when I was being called a legend and all that. Yeah. It's just being realistic. When somebody says that, I'm so embarrassed because I know I've never done anything with merit. that. When you look at things that people do, like Olivier and Burton and Newman and Redford and Jack Nicholson and all the great, the singers like Tony Bennett and Sinatra and Como and the Jolsons, and, and, and the and all the things and that they've And not Crosby? No, I've never done anything great like those people.
27: You don't think you're never created good? any
5: excitement like those people? No.
27: Do you think you're a good actor? No. What about in Country Girl?
5: Terribly. terrible, terrible aren't you? I just do the same role, same part all the time.
27: Do you think you deserved an Oscar for going my way?
5: Not really. No. I think there was a lot of better performances. I think it, it was sort of a sympathetic thing. That I had a lot of big records at that, that time. There wasn't any real competition. Most of the good actors were away at war or something. Okay.
27: If you were writing the book and it said Bing Crosby, and then you had to do a couple of lines afterwards to describe this guy in show mm-hmm. business, what would you say?
5: Well, I'd say he sang a fair song and in tune most of the time. The read lines pretty good. Had a good sense of comedy timing. Fair vocabulary. i not a bad fellow all around. That's about it. Thank you, John.
8: And then that was very beguiling. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Ben Grauer speaking from the grand ballroom
5: of the Hotel Plaza in New York City. That pleasant buzz of conversation, which is lowered for this moment as we take the air, uh, signals the uh, after dinner uh, chatter of a distinguished group of personalities of the American theater who are gathered for the 8th annual Antoinette Perry dinner and presentation in some 16 categories for outstanding contributions in plays and musicals and other activities in the theater in the annual Tony Awards of the American Theatre Wing, which initiates, incidentally, the award season of the Broadway Theatre in this eighth annual renewal of these distinguished bestowals on personalities in the theatre for their splendid contributions, and coming as it does in the very same week in which Hollywood has chosen its elect for distinguished honours. We're here on the stage of the Grand Ballroom after a very pleasant dinner and entertainment by personalities of the American Theatre, and I'm happy to be joined in the ceremonies by the lovely lady of American television, herself a member of the board of the American Theatre Wing, Miss Faye Emerson.
30: Thank you, Ben.
1: The 8th Annual Antoinette Perry Awards for Excellence in Broadway Theatre was held at the Plaza Hotel's Grand Ballroom on March 28, 1954. Broadcast on radio by NBC, it was emceed by Ben Grauer and Faye Emerson. The entire post-dinner award ceremony up. took 30 minutes. Award, some of the plays and musicals of note that season were Ondine, Kismet, the Can Can, The Tea House of the August and Moon, and, and John Murray Anderson's Almanac.
30: Theater, the magic place it is. And that's exactly what our Tony Awards are. And I know that there are some flutterings of hearts tonight from people who are winning their awards. I know that uh, uh, I enjoy giving them. Uh, I just uh, think we ought to maybe introduce the lady, and I'd like you to do that, who is um, kind of the boss of this whole thing.
5: Well, if ever someone handles with uh, authority with graciousness and charm and absence of bossism, it is this boss we're going to introduce now. She is the chairman of the board of the American Theatre Wing, and uh, it's a very real honor to present to this audience here in the Hotel Plaza uh, in honor of the Theatre Wing as well as our listeners from coast to coast. Mrs. Martin Beck, Louise Beck.
30: Louise Beck.
27: (laughs) Dear, thank you both. Isn't it terrible to be the boss? But I'm so delighted to welcome you all here. It's wonderful to have this beautiful audience tonight. Everything considering we all know what I mean. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and also, I think you ought to know, all of you, that the Theater Wing has been carrying all these, on all these years with its three projects at the moment, the professional training program, its hospital program, and its community plays. And uh, we, we work constantly, and we work very hard all year long, but our big party of the year and our final party is this Tony Award party, which we feel has become of increasing importance and which we try to do each year to give the members of our own profession, an award for what we consider a very distinguished uh, work in the American theater. I hope you all have a good time. Thank you.
30: Well, Ben, we had to force her up here, but I thought she could have carried it off very well.
5: Delightfully, and Louise Beck is now going back to that little portion of the stage alongside uh, with that, that pile of medallions which are ready to be presented. Maybe just one more little word about the medallions, Faye, before we get into, uh, before you go into the actual if presentation. If you will,
30: please, The uh, The
5: Tonys are named in honor of Antoinette Perry, distinguished actress and director who was the... Wartime chairman of the board of the American Theater Wing and secretary of this organization of the entertainment industry. These silver medallions have then come to be called affectionately in honor of her, of Antoinette Perry, have been called Tonys. There's a pile of them there, some 16, and it's interesting to note that alongside the group of Tonys is the daughter of Antoinette Perry, Elaine Perry herself, the assistant. <laughs> Hush falls over the audience, the Maya Davis orchestra itself is stilled, a distinguished group of personalities of the theater awaits the first magic word from our mistress of the evening, Miss Faye Emerson.
30: Well, uh, it's this way, Ben. Once in a generation, we're lucky if we get a great musical comedy star, and this generation is blessed. We have one who can sing and who can act and has a big and beautiful voice, and I'm talking about a lady who's going to get an award for her distinguished performance in the musical Carnival in Flanders. Dolores Gray. Will you come up, please? Dolores Gray.
1: Dolores Gray won a Tony for Carnival in Flanders, even though this musical ran for only six performances. It's a still-standing record for the briefest run by a Tony winner.
20: Just three words, Dolores. (laughs) Please speak, Dolores. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, I know I need not mention what a wonderful experience it is and what an honor to receive an award like this. But if I may speak for myself, May I say that I find it particularly thrilling to be remembered for a performance in a show which opened very early in the season and closed very early in the season. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm deeply touched and I'm very grateful.
27: Thank you very much.
30: I have a feeling that the American theater is going to hear a good deal more about Dolores Gray.
5: could not know no, a beautiful sound <laughs> in all the world that they hear from Dolores. We're gonna move right along now to the next award.
30: Uh, this is an award for a prize-winning play. You're going to hear this na- the name of this play mentioned several times tonight, so uh, don't be surprised if you hear it again. The award for his prize-winning play, The Tea House of the August Moon, Mr. John Patrick. Uh,
7: I can only say, thank you. I can write speeches for other people, but I can't write them for myself. Thank you very
8: much. <laughs> thank you.
5: Now, I, I guess there's special focus on this one. Yes, and there is. Among all the Tonys as we go along, because this is for the, Tony for the Distinguished Performance Award in a Dramatic Play by a Male Star and Focuses on you now,
13: Well, I'm
30: pretty happy to give this one because I thought we'd lost him for a while. He went away to the West Coast. This is one of the finest, uh, best talents in the theater, and we need him. And for his distinguished performance in the Tea House of the August Moon, and thanks for coming back to us, David Wayne.
1: This was David Wayne's second and final Tony Award. He would appear in numerous films and TV, including starring alongside Paul Mooney, in the 1959 film, The Last Angry Man.
34: This is a very special award for me. At one time in my early theatrical career, I was about to hitchhike my way back to Michigan from whence I came. And... Tony Perry provided the difference between professional life and death for me. Tonight I am reminiscent and grateful.
5: Hey, Faye, this is kind of a tea season, isn't it?
30: It certainly tea. is. Tea and sympathy. Tea. And didn't
5: didn't uh, Wayne put the old Darjeeling into that speech?
30: He certainly did. <laughs> I'm a Lord Grey myself.
5: Now, now besides our award uh, to the outstanding dramatic play, and we've had scrolls to Morris Evans and George Schaefer as producers, the outstanding musical play, Kismet, has received its award with Tonys to Charles Lederer, Luther Davis, and now the awards to the musical arrangers of Kismet.
8: And
30: uh, I'm married to a musician, so I know that's pretty important. This award for their musical arrangements for the musical Kismet, Robert Wright and George Forrest.
5: Well, Faye, have we... No, there's one more, isn't
30: there? Oh, I think there's one more. In yes.
5: 16 categories, we've you've presented Eighteen Tonys and Three Scrolls.
8: Mm-hmm.
5: One more. Outstanding. Uh, we presented the outstanding dramatic play, musical play, distinguished performance, male star, distinguished music performance, female You're star. Me. What could it be? <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, uh, oh, there is, yes. Oh, yes. Distinguished performance, dramatic play. That's mm-hmm. a play without music, female star.
30: That's right, Ben. And this was an awfully difficult one uh, this year, as you know, all of you who went to the theater. There were so many beautiful performances. But as I said before about musical comedy stars, there once in a great while comes over the horizon a great, great star. And we've got one. And uh, we all we have to say simply is for a distinguished performance in the title role of Andine, Audrey Hepburn.
1: 1954 was a banner year for the 25-year-old Audrey Hepburn. Three days earlier, she won a Best Actress Oscar for her starring role in Roman Holiday. She'd also won a Golden Globe for the same film. In September, Sabrina would premiere, for which she was again Oscar-nominated the following year.
30: In the last act of the play, Dean has to leave this world and go back to the water. Before she leaves, she throws many of her precious and dearest possessions into the water so that she may swim among them forever. Tomorrow, this award will be floating in the water.
8: <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear.
30: I'm not going to let you go just for a minute because it's been a kind of big week already for you, Audrey. But then it's been a big year, hasn't it? But uh, the thing that I love so much about Audrey Hepburn is that she plans for the next few years to be bigger because she's devoted and dedicated to her work. At least that's what you told me. Yes, (laughs) And uh, we're very proud and happy for you. And we expect to see even greater things from you, Audrey, if that's
8: possible. Thank you,
30: Fay. Ben, don't you have something to say to this pretty lady?
35: Well, I have just,
5: ooh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and other uh, colorful and thrilling pra- uh, phrases. I remember about uh, three months ago, Audrey, we were up the uh, Upper Floor at Sardis. That's
8: right.
5: For the Film Critics Award, remember? And you were there with the, uh, other members of the theater, and you were just starting out for, uh, was it Proud in Boston? Um... When did on Undies-
26: that's
30: right, yes, just yeah. before we left for
5: Boston. And you were quite hopeful about it, and I said, it's wonderful, a little girl like you with a 24-inch waist, and you slapped me, and you said, what do you mean, 20 inches? <laughs> That's
30: right. <laughs> That's right. But it's very unkind of you to mention it in front of me.
8: <laughs> <laughs>
5: uh, Audrey, I seen you Thursday night.
8: You
5: are. That, you know, that other award. <laughs> oh, you did? Uh, yes. <laughs> this is very pretty, isn't it, this one? It's
30: beautiful. Right. We're proud and happy for you, Audrey, and we're going to see you again here at this same kind of dinner year after year after year, and I expect that you won't always go away empty-handed. Thank you, Audrey.
16: Thank you very much.
1: As March drew to a close, Mutual Broadcasting's Frank Hemingway took to the air on March 30th with the evening news from KHJ in Los Angeles. With a hydrogen bomb in development, Russia wanted to join NATO. In Washington, President Eisenhower was making changes to the Taft-Hartley labor law. And in present-day Vietnam, a massive battle was taking place at the French military base at Dien Bien Phu.
36: Here is Folgers Coffee with radio's shortest commercial. When I say coffee, I mean Folgers. And here's the first edition of the evening news. All the news that's news today broadcast for you by Hemingway. No dearth of headlines this March afternoon. You can start with the president's news conference, which provided a surprise when our atomic headman, Louis Strauss, told reporters, the new H-bomb was so powerful Just one of them could put a city like New York out of commission. Furthermore, he skipped the scientific double talk and called it an H bomb. And along came Russia with a most astounding idea, namely, and to wit, that she be permitted to join the North Atlantic Treaty Alliance, an alliance which most everyone acknowledges was formed just in case Russia ever decided to start anything in Europe. No surprise this, but it's now official. The president has signed the billion-dollar excise tax reduction bill, and he even went so far as to say he thinks it will stimulate business. The French report they've won a victory. Whether it's the final one or not in that long-drawn-out battle for Dien Bien Phu, we don't know. Before we leave the realm of spot news, speed pilot Joe DeBona broke the transcontinental speed record for a non-jet plane. He flew a souped-up F-51 Mustang from Los Angeles to New York in 4 hours and 24 minutes and 17 seconds. What happened to those 17 seconds? He broke the previous record by 28 minutes and 36 seconds. And Bona came perilously close to beating the mark set by jet planes. That record is four hours, eight minutes, and five seconds. No matter how much coffee costs per pound, a cup of rich, flavorful coffee still costs you little more than two and one-half cents to make at home. That means that coffee is still one of the world's best beverage bargains. And remember, the high quality of Folger's coffee remains unchanged.
1: The March 30th news broadcast hinted at things to come.
5: I ask you now to give the Stevens version of the investigation by Senator McCarthy and his staff of Fort Monmouth. I want your version of the work that was done by the senator and his staff, the character of work they did, the importance of it in your opinion, the necessity for it or the lack of necessity for it.
1: Next time on Breaking Walls, April ushers in the Army McCarthy hearings, presidential speeches, schemers, slanderers, nude prowlers, and even a Benny seance. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg, The Complete Escape Blog by Keith Scott, as well as articles from Broadcasting Magazine and Life Magazine. On the interview front, Alice Fay and John Goodell spoke to Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Mandel Kramer and William N. Robeson spoke to Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran, for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these full interviews at goldenage-wtic.org. Harry Bartell, Mary Jane Croft, Don Diamond, Jack Johnstone, and Byron Kane spoke to Spurvac. For more info, go to spurvac.com. Dick Joy, Elliot Lewis, and E. Jack Newman spoke with John Dunning for his 71KNUS program from Denver. Norman MacDonald was with John Hickman for his Gunsmoke documentary. William Conrad spoke to collector Chris Lambesis in 1969. And Bing Crosby spoke with Barbara Walters in 1977. Selected music featured in today's episode was Fever by Peggy Lee, Sleepwalk by Henri Rene, Exotique Bossa Nova by Martin Denny, The Venice Dreamer Parts 1 and 2 by George Winston, and Dance Macabre by Camille Saint-Saëns. Special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendegas, and Gordon Scheme. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, please go to pastdaly.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurdvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA radio network. Breaking Walls episode 126 will pick up our miniseries in April of 1954, as both the Army McCarthy hearings and the Red Cross blood drive get underway. This episode will be available beginning April 1st, 2022, everywhere you get your podcast and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thewallbreakers and support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until April 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode 125, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much.